What's up, bitches? Hello, everybody. We had quite the anniversary yesterday, the anniversary of the Iraq War. It turned 16. It's now old enough to drive. So uh, needless to say, we're going to dive into that. I have an amazing speech to share with you. Uh, The speech is of our dad, the country's dad, Bernie Sanders, warning everybody up front as to what's going to happen if we were to go into Iraq. So you definitely don't want to miss this first segment. Um, We also have Donald Trump attacking John McCain for the 900th time and the media always taking the bait and melting down. Uh, We're going to talk about that as well. Um, A Republican congressman filed a lawsuit against Twitter And the details of that lawsuit are absolutely hilarious. Um, I'll give you a little bit of a tease here. The lawsuit involves a cow, and the lawsuit involves a mom. (laughs) Oh, it's hilarious. Okay, so we're going to discuss that. Elizabeth Warren had a town hall. This was probably two or three nights ago. I'm going to break, uh, break some of the segments from that down for you. And CNN is continuing to push the narrative that Bernie Sanders is uh, done, he's washed up, he's getting pummeled in the polls, his support for him is plummeting. Uh, And, of course, we will discuss that and debunk it, because what they're doing is they're trying to, again, top-down, it's a top-down narrative attempt, where that's not what's really happening, but they're trying to make that happen by insisting it's happening. So we're going to talk about that. And uh, Ben Shapiro later on in the show... We will be uh, mercilessly and ruthlessly going after him for saying incredibly stupid things. Okay, so without further ado, let's get started. And I'm going to pull up this first clip. We got America's dad, Bernie Sanders. Oh, do I have the... um, It's somewhere in here. I'm not going to search for it now. But uh, we also have um, Uncle Joseph Biden making an ass of himself. He's about to run for president. That's basically a guarantee at this point. So... Uh, I have to play for you this amazing speech he did in 1994, or 1993, excuse me, about the crime bill, which is just going to blow your socks off for how insane it is. But uh, let's go to first Bernie Sanders and what he said on the lead-up to the Iraq War. Okay. So yesterday was the 16th anniversary of the war in Iraq. The war is now old enough to drive. Um, Obviously, at this point, nobody even bothers discussing what victory would mean uh, we're effectively just there permanently. You know, this is what, without sounding too conspiratorial here, this is what the military-industrial complex wants. War is very profitable for, you know, certain people. And this isn't just me talking here. This is uh, Republican President Dwight Eisenhower who warned against the military-industrial complex. He basically said that when war becomes profitable, you're going to have, you know, uh, people pushing for war more often. And... You know, Smedley Butler before him warned that war is a racket. You can go read what he said. It's absolutely eye-opening. But uh, there are some people who've been right about this stuff all along. So with Iraq, we were lied into that war. We were told, oh, my God, Saddam Hussein was responsible for 9-11. That's not true. Then the goalposts moved to, oh, he's in, in part responsible to it because he had an alliance with Osama bin Laden. That's not true. Uh, then we were told, oh, he has weapons of mass destruction. Now, the implication was he has weapons of mass destruction, and obviously he's going to use them on Toledo, Ohio. That's why we have to do something. 
Needless to say, that's not true. That's absolutely ridiculous. The idea that this tin pot dictator would do an offensive attack against the world's sole superpower is laughable. Um, but nonetheless, this is what was pushed on us to, so that we, you scare people to believe there's an imminent threat. And remember, we were all on edge. It was 2003. 9-11 just happened in 2001. Uh, we were already in Afghanistan for 9-11. Um, but the idea is whip up fear and then make it so that everybody goes, okay, whatever, do whatever you got to do to keep us safe. And then, you know, they ended up taking advantage of this, going over there. And it was uh, an epic disaster. It was an illegal offensive war against a country that didn't attack us. Um, it cost a tremendous amount of money, a, a tremendous number of lives. It was devastating. It's, you know, it's, it's, it was something and is something, because, again, we're still there, that really shaped my politics. Because I remember coming up as this was happening and, and the more you learn, the older I got, the more I realized this doesn't make any sense at all. Like, what is going on here? Uh, well, again, it's, it's an incredible feeling to see what you're about to see, which is there were a few lone voices in the wilderness of sanity. Uh, one of those voices is America's dad, Bernie Sanders. He warned everybody up front. As, as there was this war fervor in Washington, D.C., and everybody was like, yeah, we got to go, we got to go, we got to go attack um, Saddam Hussein, we got to invade Iraq, it's not a question. Everybody just shut off their minds and went forward like lemmings. Bernie Sanders said this. The gentleman from Vermont is recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Speaker, and I thank my friend from New Jersey for yielding. Mr. Speaker, I don't think any member of this body disagrees that Saddam Hussein is a tyrant, a murderer, and a man who has started two wars. He is clearly someone who cannot be trusted or believed. The question, Mr. Speaker, is not whether we like Saddam Hussein or not. The question is whether he represents an imminent threat to the American people and whether a unilateral American invasion of Iraq will do more harm than good. Mr. Speaker, the front page of the Washington Post today reported that all relevant U.S. intelligence agencies now say, despite what we have heard from the White House, that, quote, Saddam Hussein is unlikely to initiate a chemical or biological attack against the United States, end quote. Even more importantly, our intelligence agencies say that should Saddam conclude that a U.S.-led attack could no longer be deterred, he might, at that point, launch a chemical or biological counterattack. In other words, there is more danger of an attack on the United States if we launch a precipitous invasion. Mr. Speaker, I do not know why the President feels despite what our intelligence agencies are saying, that it is so important to pass a resolution of this magnitude this week, and why it is necessary to go forward without the support of the United States, United Nations, and our major allies, including those who are fighting side by side with us in the war on terrorism. But I do feel that as a part of this process, the President is ignoring some of the most pressing economic issues affecting the well-being of ordinary Americans. There has been virtually no public discussion about the stock market's loss of trillions of dollars over the last few years, and that millions of Americans have seen the retirement benefits for which they have worked their entire lives disappear. When are we going to address that issue? This country today has a $340 billion trade deficit, and we have lost 10% of our manufacturing jobs in the last four years, 2 million decent-paying jobs. The average American worker today is working longer hours for lower wages than 25 years ago. When are we going to address that issue? Mr. Speaker, poverty in this country is increasing, and median family income is declining. 
throughout this country, family farmers are being driven off of the land, and veterans, the people who have put their lives on the line to defend us, are unable to get the health care and other, other benefits they were promised because of government underfunding. When are we going to tackle these issues and many other important issues that are of such deep concern to Americans? Mr. Speaker, in the brief time I have, let me give you five reasons why I'm opposed to giving the President a blank check to launch a unilateral invasion and occupation of Iraq and why I will vote against this resolution. One, I have not heard any estimates of how many young American men and women might die in such a war or how many tens of thousands of women and children in Iraq might also be killed. As a caring nation, we should do everything we can to prevent the horrible suffering that a war will cause. War must be the last recourse in international relations, not the first. Second, I am deeply concerned about the precedent that a unilateral invasion of Iraq could establish in terms of international law and the role of the United Nations. If President Bush believes that the U.S. can go to war at any time against any nation, what moral or legal obligation could our government raise if another country chose to do the same thing? Third, the United States is now involved in a very difficult war against international terrorism, as we learned tragically on September 11th. We are opposed by Osama bin Laden and religious fanatics who are prepared to engage in a kind of warfare that we have never experienced before. I agree with Brent Scowcroft, Republican former National Security Advisor for President George Bush Sr., who stated, and I quote, an attack on Iraq at this time would seriously jeopardize, if not destroy, the global counter-terrorist campaign we have undertaken, end quote. Fourth, at a time when this country has a $6 trillion national debt and a growing deficit, we should be clear that a war and a long-term American occupation of Iraq could be extremely expensive. Fifth, I am concerned about the problems of so-called unintended consequences. Who will govern Iraq when Saddam Hussein is removed? And what role will the U.S. play in an ensuing civil war that could develop in that country? Will moderate governments in the region of large Islamic fundamentalist populations be overthrown and replaced by extremists? Will the bloody conflict between Israel and the Palestinian Authority be exacerbated? And these are just a few of the questions that remain unanswered. If a unilateral American invasion of Iraq is not the best approach, what should we do? In my view, the U.S. must work with the United Nations to make certain, within clearly defined timelines, that the U.N. inspectors are allowed to do their jobs. These inspectors should undertake an unfettered search for Iraqi weapons of mass destruction and destroy them when found pursuant to past U.N. resolutions. If Iraq resists inspection and elimination of stockpiled weapons, we should stand ready to assist the U.N. in forcing compliance. I thank the gentleman. Wow. That was beyond prescient. I mean, he absolutely nailed it. Everything he said came to pass. Um, What else is there to add on to it? So he says, uh, he leads with probably the most crucial point, which is, yeah, we all agree Saddam Hussein is a terrible dictator. What he doesn't mention is, at the height of Saddam's atrocities, we were arming him and backing him. That shows you how much this is, you know, ever about morality and altruism and justice. At the height of his atrocities against the Kurds, when he was gassing the Kurds, we were arming him and backing him. So it's not about morality, but 
he says, hey, listen, we all agree he's a bad guy, he's a terrible dictator, but the question is not that. The question is, is he an imminent threat against the United States of America? And the answer is no. Um, and he made a point there that I never thought of before, and this is totally true. We were actually put, the American people were actually put in more danger by attacking than not attacking. Because we're offensively attacking Saddam, what would have happened if Saddam knows, okay, well, I'm donezo, they're coming for me, the world's sole superpower, I'm obviously going to get caught at some point and going to get killed at some point, so, okay, launch a counterattack. So we were put in worse danger by going on the offense, which we did, than we would have been if we just stayed out. That's a great point, again, a point I never thought of before, um... Then he goes through his specific objections to the war. He has five of them. He says, first of all, how many U.S. soldiers are going to die and how many Iraqi civilians are going to die? Boom. Right there. That's it. That's the most important point. And, um, you know, we have the numbers. U.S. soldiers dead, at least 4,400. Um, U.S. soldiers who were injured, not including PTSD, is about 32,200. Civilians in Iraq who were directly killed by the war, 134,000. And then indirect civilian deaths, and they lay this out in a report on Iraq. This is a a report which I've cited repeatedly. Uh, It was released in Business Insider. Um, They say deaths from the invasion that wouldn't have happened if the U.S. didn't invade. That's how they describe this. So not necessarily, you know, direct deaths as in, firing upon civilians, but people who may have died um, because they couldn't get access to food at certain points of the war, or um, they were accidentally caught in crossfire or something like that, or they, they fled their homes, and in the process of fleeing their homes, something happened, they couldn't get medical care and died. So in other words, deaths that happened as a, as a result of the invasion that were not direct civilian deaths, that number is... 655,000. And let me be clear, I'm giving the low estimates here. This is the low estimate, because there are estimates that go as high as 1 or even 2 million. Um, So we know what happened. And this is, again, his number one concern, his number one point there when he got into the specifics was, how many U.S. soldiers are going to die? How many Iraqi civilians are going to die? We don't know, but this is not okay. And remember, everything back then they were selling, like, oh, We're going to go in there. It's going to be really easy. It's going to be really quick. They're going to greet us as liberators. You know, they're going to be cheering for us, and um, it's all going to go smooth, and then the oil's going to pay for the war. And uh, so many things they said that were just, now we know, hindsight is twenty twenty. that it was just, they were all lies, and they were all wrong. And the neocons who were disgustingly wrong about everything, by the way, still have high-paying, cushy jobs, either in government or um, in the mainstream media, people like Bill Kristol, they're still taken seriously. And you have a bunch of, uh, you know, a bunch of these assholes are right back in positions of, of top authority and power, like John Bolton, who's controlling our foreign policy right now, when he was one of the architects of the Iraq War. So this is insane. And everybody who was right about the Iraq War, where are they? They're nowhere to be found. You got a few of them, like Bernie, who was running for president, but a lot of these voices who were right, Phil Donahue was fired, and he was right. Jesse Ventura was let go from MSNBC, and he was right. Was it MSNBC? Don't quote me on that, but I know Jesse Ventura lost his show because he was correct about the Iraq war. 
They didn't want any dissenting voices at the time because the country was in a war fervor because of what happened on 9-11. The approval rating for George W. Bush at the time was through the roof because everybody thought, I don't know, I guess he's just trying to protect us. And the few dissenting voices shoved to the side. His second point was, well, hold on now. What about precedent for international law? If we set the precedent that a country is able to illegally, offensively invade a country that didn't attack them, you do realize that destroys the whole international order. Because that is wildly against international law. The UN did not approve this. Uh, you know, this is, you're not doing it for self-defense. So now what happens when, I don't know, say Russia decides to waltz into Crimea and say, ours, what are you going to do about it? What do, we get, what do we say? What do we get to say? Oh, my goodness, but it's against international law to go into countries that didn't attack you and, and take them over. To which they respond, hey, bitch, you're the OGs in that game. So who, who are you to lecture us? Destroyed all of the international order in one fell swoop. And I know that in U.S. circles, in elite circles in the U.S., that they think like, well, no, we're above the law. But that argument does not work logically, and it's not something that anybody else around the world accepts. So that's not a, that's not a point. That's a non-point, and it exposes you as an idiot. So we destroyed the international order casually, and the only person who was warning about it was Bernie Sanders. Whoa, 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 what about the precedent here? What are we doing? Are we seriously going to do this? Uh, and then the third thing he says, if we go into Iraq, that actually hurts the counterterrorism effort. So at the time, we were already in Afghanistan. And we were in Afghanistan because of 9-11. Al-Qaeda was being protected by the Taliban. So we went in there and we said, well, we're going to get Al-Qaeda. Um, Taliban better stop protecting them. And that was the war that was viewed as the direct response to 9-11. But they were building a case for Iraq, which had nothing to do with 9-11, but they pretended it did have something to do with 9-11. And basically Bernie's point was you're wasting uh, resources and you're actually going to make the terrorism problem worse by breaking a region of the world which then creates a power vacuum, which gets to the, the fifth point he made, which is unintended consequences. So you're going to break Iraq, then who's going to fill the vacuum? And then what happens when a civil war erupts between Sunni and Shia and Kurds? Which, by the way, this all happened. That all happened. You broke the region, and guess who filled the power vacuum? Al-Qaeda, and then later on ISIS. There was no Al-Qaeda in Iraq before we invaded Iraq. We went into Iraq, we broke the region, and then al-Qaeda got extremely powerful, and they had pockets of control in Iraq. And then, of course, you emboldened Iran, because Iran started backing Shia militias in Iraq. And listen, it's hilarious, because there's actually a video of Dick Cheney. Remember, Dick Cheney was not just George W. Bush's vice president and evil dark Sith lord. He also was in George H.W. Bush's administration, and there's video of him back during H.W.'s time in office where when they did the first Gulf War, they were questioning, okay, should we go in and topple Saddam, go further, go into Iraq and topple Saddam? And uh, Dick Cheney was like, no. And H.W. was like, no. And then you listen to them, and they said basically what uh, Bernie said here. They were like, well, if we go in there, what happens? We topple Saddam, and then what? Who's going to fill that power vacuum? Is it going to be a Sunni government? Is it going to be a Shia government? Is it going to be a Kurdish government? Um, are we going to, is there going to be some bad actors filling the vacuum? Uh, is it worth it to totally destabilize the region because we don't like this one character? 
So Dick Cheney actually laid it out back in the early 1990s. And then he was one of the architects of the, the second Iraq war in 2003, and we know what happened. And it was Bernie who was warning everybody, no, 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 don't do it. Don't do it. Um, and then, of course, the other point, this was his fourth point, he said, it's going to be extremely expensive. Now, uh, if you want some numbers on that, well, let me give them to you. Um, direct war spending as of 2013, this is as of a while ago, direct war spending was $1.7 trillion. We had already spent $1.7 trillion as of 2013. Goodness gracious me. <laughs> and then... By 2053, because the war is paid for with borrowed money, and you've got to pay interest on that money, by 2053, it's going to cost $7 trillion. $7 trillion. Now, I don't need to remind you, the United States of America does not have universal health care, does not have free college. Um, we have a student loan debt crisis. We have an infrastructure crisis. Our infrastructure is crumbling. And we wasted $7 trillion on an illegal offensive war against a country that didn't attack us. If you grew up at the same time I grew up, and this helped shape your political worldview, you're angry. Like, I'm angry. I'm furious over what happened. And then, you know, older generations have the nerve to lecture millennials. Like, are you guys, are you fucking kidding us? Are you kidding us? I don't know about you guys, but I graduated into the worst economy possible. You know, I was done with college in 2010. The, the Great Recession hit in 2008. So graduated into a debt economy. You know, people I went to school with, they, they, when they graduated, they're like, I don't know what the fuck to do. Nobody's going to hire me. Nobody's hiring me. So graduated into a shitty economy. There was a subprime mortgage crisis and a great recession brought about by deregulation, which we had learned a generation earlier was a terrible approach to economics, which would fuck over the economy. But they did it anyway. They went to Iraq and Afghanistan and did the war on terror, blew trillions of dollars overseas. I mean, every major decision they made was wrong. And we suffered the consequences. But guess what? There was one dude who was warning every step of the way. And that dude happens to be running for president now. His name is Bernie Sanders. There's a meme going around online, and it's so true. They say, for every disastrous decision made in the past 30 years, there's a video of Bernie Sanders warning against it. That's 100% true. People wonder, why do you support Bernie? How could you not? <laughs> if you give a shit about the actual issues, how could you not? I mean, it's honestly laughable if you don't. Like, what? What do you mean you don't? What do you want? Oh, no, I prefer a watered-down, shitty version of this guy who's going to end up being a milquetoast centrist and continue the status quo. All right, then you're a jackass. What do you want me to tell you? That's what you are. <laughs> so, um, and I like how he also said at the end there, basically, okay, so what do you want to do instead of war? Just work with the UN. Work with the UN. Figure out what's actually going on in Iraq if he has weapons of mass destruction, and then we'll find a way to get out of there. What's he going to do? Say, somehow say no to the entire international community, and we send in a U.N. peacekeeping mission, and he's going to attack the U.N. peacekeeping mission, then what happens? No, there is a way to, you know, de-escalate this entire situation. And understand, we would have also not found those weapons of mass destruction, except the ones that we gave him, which were from a generation earlier. <laughs> we gave him the chemical weapons, um, but that's not what they were trying to push. They were trying to push, basically, nuclear weapons of mass destruction that he's going to use. So... 
Unbelievable, man. Bernie Sanders nailed it yet again. Yet again. And he's running for president in 2020. So feel the burn. Feel the burn, absolutely. Because you need somebody who's right on this stuff in the moment when it matters. There, there are videos of Bernie Sanders defending gay people in the early 1990s. You know which other politicians were defending gay people in the early 1990s? None. They didn't exist. They didn't exist. It took Hillary until 2013 to come out in favor of gay marriage. And by the way, what, what, was, Hillary, what was Hillary saying back in, in 2003 for the Iraq war? She voted for it. What was she saying? And what was Uncle Joseph Biden saying, who's about to run for president too, by the way? They were saying the opposite of what Bernie was saying here. So it's about judgment. It's about leadership. This guy got it right. They got it wrong. And we're still in this war today. Today. I think the only candidate or one of the only candidates who would actually end this war and get us out of there is Bernie Sanders. Okay. All right, now let's talk about Trump and McCain. My voice cracked there. That was kind of funny. Where's the video of the media fawning over him? Okay. So Trump attacked John McCain again for the 900th time, and the media went into meltdown mode for the 900th time. And um, it's really uh, cringeworthy to see. Um, so I'm going to play a video for it, uh, of it for you here. And I could this could have been a lot longer, by the way, because there's another video of uh, – you're about to see CNN, but this also happened on Fox News. Shep Smith literally almost cried defending John McCain, calling Trump, this crazy, what he's doing. So um, let's take a look. John McCain has now become a national religion. Um, Thou shalt not speaketh a negative word about him. So let's take a look and then we'll discuss. President Trump, just minutes ago, he just cannot let it go. He continues to attack a dead man. War hero, Senator John McCain. Moments ago, speaking at a tank factory in Ohio, the president going off unprompted, on the late Senator McCain, who passed away in August 2018, whose family is still grieving, blaming McCain for Middle East wars, blaming McCain for not being strong on veterans' issues, blaming McCain for the Steele dossier ending up in the hands of the FBI, attacking McCain for not voting to repeal Obamacare, and even complaining that he didn't get a thank you for allowing John McCain's funeral to go forward. I've never liked him much. Hasn't been for me. I've really, probably never will. I endorsed him at his request, and I gave him the kind of funeral that he wanted, which as president, I had to approve. I don't care about this. I didn't get thank you. That's okay. Even before this latest attack from President Trump, some Republicans were finally saying enough. Republican Senator Donny Isaacson even promising to deliver a, quote, whipping of President Trump. Uh, let's talk about all of this uh, with my panel. Uh, Kevin Madden, this is going on multiple days now. McCain's been dead for seven months. Why? Who does this help? Does this 
continue to get the base riled up, and where are Republican leaders? Uh, I don't know why he's doing it. It's so gratuitous. And to your other question, it's in service of nothing. That's why it doesn't make any sense. Um, and, you know, I think that the Republican leaders, more Republican leaders are going to come out, particularly as it becomes this character question for them on whether or not they're going to stand up for a deceased war hero, not just a dead man, a deceased war hero who, who gave so much uh, of his life and his service to this country. So more and more will have to come out because it will, I think, continue to be a, a question of where they stand on, on, a, on a, a key character question. Well, a combat veteran I know uh, texted me just out of the blue saying that the comments uh, that the president makes about McCain hurt his soul. In a room full of factory workers who manufacture military tanks, the president just once again attacked the late Senator John McCain, this time saying McCain, a veteran, quote, didn't get the job done for his fellow veterans when he voted against repealing Obamacare, despite rebukes from some Republican lawmakers. Uh, McCain's own family expressing their disgust with his previous attacks. Uh, the president now quadrupling down moments ago in Lima, Ohio. I gave him the funeral he wanted, and I didn't get a thank you. This is coming from the President of the United States, again, disparaging the late Senator John McCain. Uh, it's disgraceful. Barbara Starr is at the Pentagon, and Barbara, it's just, it, it, it's sad at this point. So, you know, there is a real question here about the silence from the U.S. military on how much President Trump is politicizing the ranks, how much he is using them to further his own political agenda, and why commanders are being so silent about this. I, I mean, you know, you've got to rip the Band-Aid off sometime and ask the yeah. question, why the silence? And I don't think there's a good answer to that today, Brooke. Thank you for saying that, um, Barbara Starr. Thank you. The Holy Saint, John McCain. Oh, what a wonderful man. What was your favorite part about his legacy? I like the fact that he still called them gooks and that he sang bomb, 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 bomb Iran. Can you just reel it in? Oh, my God, with the fake outrage. Listen, it is fake outrage. Don't tell me that they're, like... They're honestly, like, clutching their pearls. How dare you be smetched the leg of hair? Now, by the way, I totally agree with McCain and disagree with Trump on one of the core issues Trump keeps bringing up to say I wasn't a fan of McCain, and that issue, of course, is Obamacare. Remember, McCain came in at the last minute, and he was like, I did do thumbs up or thumbs down. Whatever he did... What he was saying was, I'm against Trump care and the repeal of Obamacare, and I'm in favor of keeping Obamacare in place. But listen, the reason why McCain did it is because he's a petty man, and he was more against him and Trump had been sniping back and forth. So on a personal level, he was against Donald Trump. So he said, because of my personal feud with you, I'm now going to side with Obamacare. Now, thankfully, because of John McCain's pettiness, we ended up, you know, helping so many more people. There were way more people would have lost their health care had it been for McCain voting the other way. So nothing but credit to John McCain on the issue of Obamacare when he came in at the last minute and saved it. But that's a fucking low bar. And by the way, everything else that uh, you know, Trump and McCain have gone back and forth on, like, for example, wars, McCain is wrong and Trump is right. This idea that 
you're not allowed to criticize this guy. He died seven months ago, and they're like, off limits. What? Why is that off limits? He was a fucking major public figure in American life and a politician with a long record. The dude was against Martin Luther King Day. Am I not allowed to say how that's dumb and that's wrong? Am I not allowed to say that? Am I not allowed to say that I'm, he's wrong on the fucking 9,716 wars he was in favor of because the guy hardly ever met a war he didn't like? Am I not allowed to say that? Now, I'll give him credit where credit's due, and he was against torture, and he made you know, passionate speeches against torture. Great, I'll give him credit for that. But don't tell me I can't criticize somebody that, who's a major public figure and a politician. And don't, like, they always take the fucking bait. They always take the bait. Listen, it, here's what, what really annoys me more than anything else about this. Look at their breathless, breathless excuse me, coverage over John McCain and realize this all happened on the day that was the 16th anniversary of the war in Iraq, an illegal offensive war against a country that didn't attack us. And there wasn't one one-hundredth the outrage over this war, which is still going on and is illegal, there was more outrage over John McCain a thousand times over. So that, uh, that's inexcusable in my opinion, because you're not serious people. It, you're, you're acting like, you know, ah, oh, you're not allowed to besmirch the great legacy of this man, sir. Yes, you are. Of course you are. And then the point about, like, there, I feel like there's a lot of implication, like they're trying to say, oh, he didn't get a thank you from McCain or something, when obviously McCain was dead. No, he obviously means, like, nobody from the family was like, hey, thank you for allowing this giant big funeral, even though you had massive disagreements with him. And I agree, that's tasteless for him to say that. But who gives a fuck? Like, it's not breaking news or something to melt down over that Donald Trump is, is crass and tasteless. We fucking got it. We got it all the way back in goddamn 2015. We got it all the way back before he ran for president in 2013, 2012, 2011, when he was fucking running around the country pushing the birther lie that the first black president was an American. We got it. He's a tasteless asshole. Not that hard, okay? Move on. You want to know what you should be talking about on the 16th anniversary of the Iraq war? Here, I got the facts pulled up in front of me. U.S. soldiers killed, at least 4,400. U.S. soldiers injured, not including PTSD. 32,200 civilians directly killed, 134,000 indirect deaths from the invasion. Civilians killed because of the invasion that weren't direct, 655,000. Reporters killed, 150. 2.8 million people were internally displaced or fled the country. $1.7 trillion, that was the direct spending for the war as of 2013. $5,000 is the amount of money spent in Iraq per second. $490 billion is war benefits that are now owed to the vets. $7 trillion is the total cost of the war by 2053. $20 billion is the amount of money paid to the corrupt contractor, KBR. $3 billion is the questionable payments to corrupt contractor, KBR. $3 billion. War profiteers. People died because they lied and they got rich. $60 billion is the amount of money that was paid for the corrupted reconstruction effort where people were just, and U.S. companies were just robbing the taxpayers blind. Uh, missing, missing, 546 million. Um, 190,000 guns, 110,000 AK-47s ended up in the hands of ISIS, by the way. 40% was the increase in Iraqi oil production. $5 billion was the revenue from Iraqi oil in 2003. 
after the invasion and after we got our hands on it, that number went from $5 billion to $85 billion in revenue from oil production. Wow, I wonder if that's a major part as to what this war was about that we weren't told. $150 billion is the amount oil companies are expected to invest in oil development over the next decade. And then, of course, there were $75 billion. That was the approximate amount expected to go to American subcontracting companies, including Halliburton, which Dick Cheney took millions of dollars from. And then zero is the grand total of um, you know, nuclear weapons of mass destruction that were found. So I don't know. Maybe on the 16th anniversary of the war in Iraq, focus on the fact that we waged an illegal offensive war. All these people died. Trillions of dollars were wasted. And we shouldn't fucking be there anymore. Maybe talk about that just a little bit. Just a little bit. They didn't. They didn't. You know what they did? Oh, John McCain. Oh, why won't you bow down for our warmonger politician friend? Oh, oh the hurt, the pain. The, the worst part of that entire clip, you go back and watch it, I'm telling you, is when Jake Tapper says, I got a text from a troop. Oh, the troops. I got a text from a troop who said, when President Trump mentions John McCain in a negative way, it hurts my soul. That's the level of discourse that we're having. It's off limits. This topic is off limits. You hurt the soul of one of the troops. Ah, the troops. Ah. Fuck you guys, man. You want to you wanna look after the troops? Maybe don't put them in harm's way in illegal offensive wars where they die for no reason. Maybe that. But go ahead. Take the, Every time Trump utters anything about McCain, any time he says something... Like, they always take the bait, and they do their fake outrage on his, like, side comments. Let it go. Focus on the policies. But they won't, because they don't care on that stuff. They actually agree with him on most of the policy stuff. And that's the dirty little secret. There's a game being played on you. The game is not, you know, Trump versus us. The game is elite versus regular people. And they all agree. Forget the sideshow of your comments hurt my feelings. Forget all that. That's all a sideshow. There's a battle going on now. It's a class battle, working people versus the elite. And, um, you know, they ain't looking out for us. The media's not looking out for us. Trump is not looking out for us. Your government's rigged against your interests. And this is the, the sideshow clown shit that they got people fighting over. I don't give a fuck. If President Adderall goes after, you know, the dead warmonger, sorry. All right, next. Oh, my God, the Devin Nunes lawsuit. I love this so much. What a great story. Okay, where is the video? Here it is. Let's have some fun. So a Republican congressman filed a $250 million lawsuit against Twitter. Um, Now, this is 
absolutely hilarious for a variety of reasons. I'm going to show you, you know, when he announced this, it was in an interview with Hannity, who, of course, is known to throw softball questions at Republican politicians. Um, now, Alan Dershowitz, who's nobody's lefty, he claims, like, oh, yeah, I'm a moderate Democrat. This dude has been doing Trump defending nonstop, Republican defending nonstop, and um, there's nothing he would like more than to hop in on, on the side of Nunes here and be like, yeah, totally, Twitter, bad, sue him, you're right. Uh, Alan Dershowitz was like, dude, you have less than no case. Like, this is embarrassing. You're going to get laughed out of the courtroom. <laughs> now, if you think that's, that he's wrong, mm, you got another thing coming. Dershowitz is actually 100% right. Um, take a look at his description of his own lawsuit here, and then I'll break it down for you, and we'll laugh about it. Just hours ago, former Intel Committee Chairman Congressman Devin Nunes filed a $250 million lawsuit against Twitter in Virginia State Court, alleging the social media company negligently failed to remove defamatory and malicious tweets about the congressman and his family. Twitter is declining comment tonight, but here to talk about this lawsuit and much more, California Congressman Devin Nunes. Um, you do have a high bar. We all need that because if you're a public figure, you need actual malice and what's known as a reckless disregard for the truth, or else I would sue people every hour of every day. But it's harder. Um, it's not like in the case of the Covington High School kid. Tell us about the suit. Yeah, so this is the first of many, Sean. And what we're doing here is we're actually going after Twitter first because they are the main proliferator, and they spread this fake news and the slanderous news. So if you look at the lawsuit, I think at night people can go and look at it on Fox News, uh, it's all there. But what we're, the case we're basically making is, is this was an orchestrated effort. Uh, so people were targeting me. There were anonymous accounts that were, that were developed. And look, there's not supposed to be, these accounts aren't supposed to exist. Twitter says that they don't have accounts that do this. So like I said, this is the first of many lawsuits that are coming, but, it, but there were several fake news accounts, whether it was regard to the Russia investigation or to me, and we have to hold all of these people accountable because if we don't, our First Amendment rights are at stake here. This isn't 20 years ago, Sean. What's happening is, is, that, is that Twitter becomes the gaslighting for all of the news, and when they're regulating us, they're regulating what people can see on my tweets, which they've done, and then they're, they're proliferating out things that they agree with, with the algorithms that they develop. They need to come clean. They're, they're not a public right? square. They are content developers. Uh, for That's example, right. I, so if you I remember, actually interviewed uh, last Jack summer, Brown. They, they shadow banned me. Well, and, and he denied that that ever went on, and he said he wants to be fair, but you didn't. You have not, your analysis has not shown that it is fair across the board and that a lot of these social media sites are, in fact, using those algorithms, if you will, or their behaviors to advance one side, which would then be, what, a political donation for Democrats? <laughs> well, how is it that every day uh, there's conservatives that are being banned? So, you know, look, they don't want to call it shadow banning. That's fine. They can call it whatever they want to call it. But the fact of the matter is, is people could not see my tweets. Okay? So now, but if you move forward, if you get emails from Twitter, it's constantly left-wing stuff. It's constantly fake news stuff. So I think if Twitter wants to be in the public square 
and they don't want to be a content developer, they should come clean, give us all your algorithms. How is it possible that I can be attacked relentlessly hundreds of times a day by fake accounts that they claim in their, in their terms of service should not be there? So I guarantee you if I put something out that was sexually explicit or attacked someone personally, they would, they would stop it. They would say this is a sensitive tweet. They, they never did that to any of the people that, that were coming after me or other conservatives. So, and this is more about, this is more than just conservatives. Every American should care about this if they care about the First Amendment because the press has definitely changed. You've said it numerous times. The press is dead. And that's why if we don't go and clean this up, and I've, been, I've actually said this on your show a few weeks ago, this is part of the continuing Russia investigation. We're not going to just let all these fake news stories that were written about this investigation, about this hoax, that were lies. We're going to challenge every single one of them in court. We're just starting with Twitter. Okay, so first of all, it's hilarious that he thinks he's a hero. <laughs> he really does. But let me, let me just get out of the way, first and foremost, my take on some very basic things here. Shadow banning isn't real is the first question. The answer is yes. Shadow banning is 100% real. Is it only targeted at conservatives? No, it is not. Um, should shadow banning happen? My personal opinion? No, it shouldn't happen. Um, I know because I, for a segment I was doing, I, I went to try to find David Duke's Twitter account, and I couldn't find it. When you type it into the, when I typed it, in, I don't know if this is still the case now, but back when I did it, which was a while ago, it was the case. When I typed it into the Twitter search bar, it didn't come up. I had to go to Google, type in Twitter David Duke, and then it would come up through the Google search. It would not come up on Twitter. So, yes, shadow banning is real. Um, is it only used on conservatives? No. Is Kyle Kalinske in favor of any kind of shadow bans? No, I, I, I'm not. I'm not. I, I think that's a... I, I think it's just honestly kind of silly. Like, people will find ways around it, and on principle, you shouldn't stop people from being able to find what they're looking for. If somebody, you know, directly threatens somebody or doxes somebody, um, then, yeah, you could, Twitter has a role to pull it down, and even if you're the hard, most hardcore free speech absolutist, you, you can take that position, and I do take that position, but shadow banning shouldn't be a thing. Um, now, in terms of, my overall position regarding free speech on the Internet, everybody knows what I'm for. I've talked about it uh, endlessly. But I think that Twitter ultimately should be regulated like a public utility because it is the town square. It is the, the public square. And it's not just any other platform. And you can't just say, hey, start your own platform and get your voice out there. No, it's where, you know, it's so large and so powerful, just like Facebook. Um, and that should be regulated like a public utility too that we should lean overwhelmingly on the side of free speech, and the only time we really take action is what I laid out already, which is direct threats of violence or doxing or, uh, you know, provable cases of libel, slander, and things of that nature, which is notoriously hard to prove, um, infamously hard to prove, famously hard to prove, whatever. Um, so that's my take. I think we should regulate these like uh, public utility, and that's the best solution, and people who are screaming for censorship on both sides I think are ridiculous. Um, now... Here's why his lawsuit, because some people might hear what he said and think, oh, Devin Nunes is trying to have those things done, like stop shadow banning and regulate it like a public utility. Listen very clearly to what his specific complaint is, because that matters. The details matter in court. The name of the accounts 
the names of the accounts that he's losing his shit over and he's suing over. There was an account, or is an account, called Devin Nunez's Cow and Devin Nunez's Mom, who've basically been shitposting and trolling Devin Nunez this entire time because he's a hacky piece of shit Republican congressman. And he was the head of the committee on the Russia investigation or whatever. Sorry for the beeping in the background. Um, so, dude, that is, that's called a parody. That's called a joke. That's called trolling. That's called shitposting. You know who does even more shitposting? The far right. The far right is actually known for their shitposting slash trolling prowess. Now, have any of you ever seen me ever do a segment where I say, you know, we should do a lawsuit to try to get the far right to stop from shitposting and doing their Pepe memes and doing their, you know, whatever. I've never said it because I'm not an idiot, because I understand that once you set that precedent, what a horrendous precedent that would be. You want to give these companies the power to stop people from shitposting? Well, obviously that's going to be flipped back on you and your side. No, I say shitposting is a right. <laughs> so, I mean, again, you can't do direct threats of violence. You can't dock somebody. Um, those are punishable. But they're fucking making fun of you, and that's perfect. Are you kidding me? If, if you're a public figure, get used to it, bitch. We all get made fun of. All of us get made fun of. All of us get made fun of. And if you didn't have a stick up your ass, you actually find some humor in it. You actually find it pretty funny. You know, when people call me the seltzer sellout. That's not really making fun. I mean, it's just kind of like a weird thing. But, yeah, it's, I find it funny, and I enjoy it. <laughs> I enjoy it when, you know, people poke fun and, and shit post and troll and whatnot. It, like, how, how do you have skin that's this thin? So that's literally in the details of the lawsuits. Oh, my, they spread fake news and they come after me maliciously and they defame me. Devin Nunez's cow and Devin Nunez's mom maliciously defame me online. Pipe down, fuckhead. Um, and then he goes from that to they probably, they're spreading uh, fake news and slanderous news. And then he makes a seamless transition from that to our First Amendment rights are at stake here. You're doing a lawsuit where you're trying to get accounts pulled for doing slanderous, defamatory stuff against you. The accounts are obvious parodies, Devin Nunez's cow and Devin Nunez's mom. You're the one who is literally trying to crack down on free speech, taking the anti-First Amendment position, anti-free speech position. And then you have the nerve to try to pretend like... My lawsuit is about protecting free speech. No, if you were about protecting free speech, you'd be saying Devin Nunez's cow, have at it. Devin Nunez's mom, have at it. The fuck are you talking about, bro? And their tweets, I read their tweets, not in any way, shape, or form slanderous, not in any way, shape, or form, you know, misleading. Who the fuck sees an account called Devin Nunez's cow and goes, this should not be allowed, and this is obviously real. His cow is actually tweeting at him, doing defamatory stuff. So, and, and here's the main point of this segment. It has become infuriating to discuss free speech online with far-right characters because they seamlessly go back and forth between whining about how free speech needs to be protected at all costs and they're free speech absolutists. They take that position half the time. And then the other half the time, they seamlessly transition to, you know, everybody who comes after me should really have their shit pulled down. Everybody who comes after me, why isn't Twitter suspending those people who come after me? Why are they not going after those people? 
Why are they only going after conservatives? By the way, they're not only going after conservatives. Uh, wanna, there's a, a bunch of parody accounts that were created based off my nicknames of the Democratic candidates. Bet on my stork, Amy Cloudboot Jar, so on and so forth. So go follow them because I think they're fucking hilarious. This just happened to bet on my stork the other day. Pulled down. They said, oh, it's not clear that you're a parody. It says parody right in his fucking name. Bet on my stork, parody. He was pulled down. Now, thankfully, he got his account back. But he was pulled down and they said, it's not clear you're a parody. What the fuck are you talking about? It happened to bet on my stork. It happened to another one of the, the presidential parody names that, that I came up with that somebody took the initiative and created an account for. It happened to um, Peter Douche who was a parody of Peter Dow, and it said parody in the fucking thing. It happens to so many people on the left when they're accused of, you're, you're, uh, you're fake news, you're, uh, you're Russian, you're a Russian bot. I know people who are not Russian bots who have had their accounts pulled because they're accused of being Russian bots, and they're on the left. So when you say it's only the right-wingers who are getting censored, that is objectively, factually wrong. It's wrong. And stop fucking flipping on the goddamn principle. Stop saying free speech absolutism. Let everybody, let everybody speak. I'm in favor of an open marketplace of ideas, a free marketplace of ideas. I believe in the First Amendment. I believe in free speech. Let people say whatever they want. Why are you fucking trying to stop me, snowflake cuck bitch? What do you need, a safe space? Let people say whatever they want. Oh, my God, I can't believe that the left is coming after me with this malicious, defamatory stuff. Pull their stuff down. Why is the left not getting pulled down? You should really look into what the left is saying because maybe the left should be pulled down. Which is it? Do you want to pull people down or do you not want to pull people down? Which is, he's doing a lawsuit where he's pretending, me, I'm for free speech. Which is why we have to pull down the Devin Nunez's cow account and Devin Nunez's mom account. And how the fuck did you come up with the $250 million number? Really? Are your feelings that hurt? I need $250 million because there was a mean cow online. I don't like it. I don't like it at all. What a fucking dumbass you are. Like, it's insulting how dumb you are. You know? Like, I almost feel bad for you. How do you do this lawsuit and then pretend like you're the one for free speech when you're trying to crack down on the free speech? The shit posting, the trolling. Oh my god, Devin Nunes, go away. Go away. You're so embarrassed. This is your legacy now, bro. Your legacy is I'm the contradictory idiot. <laughs> like, that's your whole thing. Oh, my God. For everybody on the right who actually cares about free speech, let me give you a little tip. If you actually care about free speech, thing number one on your list should be I'm going to defend the people who are trolling and shitposting against me. Not, they're mean people to me, and therefore they should buy and Twitter pulling them down. Because then you expose yourself as an idiot and a hypocrite and a contradictory fool. So stop doing that. Okay, now let's go to Elizabeth Warren. Um, <clears throat> she did a town hall. Let me set this up for you. So Elizabeth Warren did a town hall with CNN, and honestly, she lit up with enthusiasm when she spoke about economics and corruption and regulation. This is really her wheelhouse here. Let's take a look, and then we'll break it down. How do you plan to make sure the extremely rich pay their fair taxes? Whoa! 
we need big structural change in this country. And that means the kind of, let's just admit it, when you've got a government that works for the rich and it's not working nearly as well for anyone else, that's corruption. And we need to call it out plain and simple. So the first thing we need to do is we need to attack that corruption head on. I have the biggest anti-corruption bill since Watergate. Big problem, you gotta have a big bill to deal with it. Now, it's got a lot of pieces to it, but the main point is to beat back on the influence of money. Because that's how they keep getting this government, getting this country to work for them. So for example, my bill says we're gonna end lobbying as we know it. talking about economic populism, her view on taxes, the economy, Wall Street. That's where Elizabeth Warren shines. And I've always said this, and some people even in my audience have disagreed with me on this, but deep down she is like a hardcore policy wonk when it comes to that stuff. And she is, I actually think she's further left on this stuff than she gives herself credit for. Because there's been a bunch of, you know, um, times where she's been asked about socialism versus capitalism, and she says, like, I'm a proud capitalist. And then, but then she goes on to explain, like, I'm for rules, and the rules need to be strong, and the rules need to be in favor of working people. And really, she's way more of a, of a social democrat than she really gives herself credit for in her, you know, fawning over capitalism 
um, actually makes her seem further right-wing than she really is once she gets into specific policy stuff. Now, Elizabeth Warren kind of starts flailing when she gets to other topics, whether it's social issues, whether it's foreign policy is probably her worst spot. She, she voted for Trump's monstrous, disgusting, multi-billion dollar abomination increase to the military budget. Um, so there's definitely a lot more for her to brush up on. But the more I see her campaign, the more I think that um, maybe Bernie Sanders people would look at her for, for a potential VP spot. Um, the more we move along, and I, I don't think I don't think she's going to get enough to really do a, a a solid run at the nomination. But I think there will be enough support there, and there's enough ideological agreement between her and Bernie, where Bernie might go, "I'll go Elizabeth Warren for VP," and that would be a power ticket, dude. I mean, that would be a power ticket. I mean. I, I like the I, I love that idea. I love the idea of Bernie and Nina Turner. I love the idea of Bernie and Tulsi Gabbard. Um, I, I, I honestly think he would shy away from Tulsi because she gets smeared by the media so much that that would scare him away. He's shown I don't know a little. I think he kowtows a little too much to mainstream media pressure uh, in a variety of different ways. But um, Elizabeth Warren, I mean, you really can't go wrong with that pick. I don't. I think that that's a wonderful pick, despite my disagreements with her. And her, you know, she's shown that she will play Machiavellian politics from time to time, as she did in the 2016 election. Um, but ultimately, she shines on these issues. And I actually think it was probably so frustrating for her. She had been rolling out over the past like three weeks, four weeks. She had been rolling out awesome policy after awesome policy after awesome policy. We discussed many of them on this show. Like, we covered the wealth tax because it was really a great idea. And by the way, it's a way of reframing the debate where it makes people support what is a very progressive tax because of the way it's described. But anyway, she wasn't getting any coverage in mainstream media. Like, she was rolling out awesome policy after awesome policy, and the media was like, yawn. Did Trump attack McCain again? Let's melt down over that for three weeks straight. Um, and then meanwhile, Beto, Beto, Beto O'Rourke, I almost said Beta. It's Beto on my store. Um, Beto O'Rourke shits out a platitude sandwich, and the media's like, oh, oh, my goodness, what a viable candidate. Oh, he's amazing. Oh, we love him so much. And Elizabeth Warren's sitting there with holding her, like, 18-page policy detail, uh, policy descriptions, like, but I've been, I've been actually really trying to do the right thing here. <laughs> so poor Liz. I mean, I, I do like her. I know some of you guys still hate her, but, you know. Um, I think it's looking somewhat likely that she would be a VP pick. And um, I won't be mad at that. All right. Let's take a break. When we come back, I got some more Elizabeth Warren for you, and then we'll get to CNN smearing Bernie, Joe Biden shitting the bed, and um, Fox News went after Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez yet again, and it was ugly. Stay right there.
All right, bitches, we back. Time for a little beepathon. I gotta get this plugged in the right way. All right, well, success at least to this point. Okay, so let's uh, jump back into Elizabeth Warren's town hall. Still have, um, still have some stuff to share with you from it. Okay. Let's go to her answer on Medicare for All <clears throat> and see what she has to say. Ah, the fucking beat didn't work. So Elizabeth Warren was asked about Medicare for All at her town hall. Jesus Christ, the fucking beeping. Shut the fuck up, please. <laughs> All right, attempt number 9,312 to get this to work. That does not sound promising. All right, it worked. Nope, now it does. Oh, <laughs> uh, whatever. In order for the show to continue, this must be fucking plugged in. Elizabeth Warren was asked about her Medicare for All, about her position on Medicare for All at her town hall on CNN, and uh, she gave a rather long answer. Not sure how I feel about this answer. Take a look. Senator Warren, thank you so much for being here this evening and your tireless advocacy for universal health care. Uh, as a supporter of universal health care and an advocate for organized labor, I do worry about the current bill's elimination of private health insurance. Oh, yeah. As that would eliminate uh, the private health employer-based plans that so many unions have advocated for. Can you uh, explain how Medicare for All would be better for workers than simply improving the Affordable Care Act? Okay. So it's a good question. Let's start with our statement that we should make every time we start to talk about changes in our health care. And that is, health care is a basic human right, and we fight for basic human rights. And then, let's put these in order, because I appreciate that your question starts with the Affordable Care Act. Let's all remember, when we're talking about what's possible, Let's start where we are and the difference between Democrats and Republicans. Right now, Democrats are trying to figure out how to expand health care coverage at the lowest possible cost so everybody is covered. Republicans right this minute are out there trying to repeal the Affordable Care Act. They've got a lawsuit pending down in Texas where they're trying to roll it back, what they couldn't do with a vote. They're trying to do with the courts. HHS every day is doing what they can to undermine the Affordable Care Act. So when we're talking about health care in America right now, the first thing we need to be talking about is defend the Affordable Care Act, protection under the Affordable Care Act. Let's make the improvements that are what I think of as the low-hanging fruit. For example, let's bring down the cost of prescription drugs all across the country. We got a lot 
lots of ways we can do that. We can import drugs from Canada where the safety standards are the same. That would cut costs dramatically. We can negotiate the prices under Medicare. That would cut costs dramatically. And I've got a proposal to help bring down the cost on generic drugs, which could be about 90% of all prescriptions. So let's get those costs down. And then you know what you're going to hear from a consumer advocate. And that is we need to hold insurance companies accountable. And that means no tripping and trapping people on those insurance contracts. And then when we talk about Medicare for all, there are a lot of different pathways. What we're all looking for is the lowest cost way to make sure everybody gets covered. And some folks are talking about let's start lowering the age. Maybe bring it down to 60, 55, 50. That helps cover people who are most at risk and can be helpful, for example, to the labor's plans. Some people say do it the other way. Let's bring it up from uh, everybody under 30 gets covered by Medicare. Others say let employers be able to buy into the Medicare plans. Others say let's let employees buy into the Medicare plans. For me, what's key is we get everybody at the table on this, that labor's at the table, that people who have to buy on their own, everybody comes to the table together, and we figure out how to do Medicare for all in a way that makes sure that we're going to get 100% coverage in this country at the lowest possible cost for everyone. So, so if I could just follow up a little on Jay's question. So you are a co-sponsor of Senator Bernie yep. Sanders' Medicare for, for All bill, and I understand there are a lot of different paths to universal coverage, but, yep. but his bill that you've co-sponsored would essentially eliminate private insurance. Is that something you could support? He's got a runway for that. I think we get everybody together, and that's what it is we'll decide. Um, I've also co-sponsored other bills, including expanding Medicaid is another approach that we use. But what's really important to me about this is we never lose sight of what the center is, because the center is about making sure that every single person in this country gets the coverage they need and that it's at a price that they can afford. We start with our values, we'll get to the right place. So theoretically, though, there could be a, a role for private insurance companies under President or there could be a, there could be a temporary role. Even Bernie's plan has a runway before it gets there. Um, because, it's a, look, it's a big and complex system, and we've got to make sure that we land this in a way that doesn't do any harm. Everybody has got to stay covered. It's critical. That really wasn't a great answer, um, especially the end. Listen, when they ask you this question, and this is now, I think, the number one trick, trap question that's used by corporate media on this issue of Medicare for All. When they ask you, oh, you want to eliminate private health insurance, you have to have a solid, quick, to the point, accurate answer to that. So here's one example of something you could say. I would eliminate the private health insurance system as is, as it exists right now, but I would still allow for supplemental private care. So everybody's covered under Medicare for All system. Everything you need is covered, full stop. But yes, if you would like to get supplemental private care, uh, or excuse me, private insurance, so you can, you know, uh, do some sort of uh, 
elective procedure, do some sort of plastic surgery or something, then yeah, for no problem, you can do that. It doesn't ban private insurance, but it makes it so that the default is not private because the private system is the root of all of our problems, which leads to 23 to 45,000 people, or excuse me, 32 to 45,000 people dying every year because they don't have access to basic care, and leads to 29 million people being uninsured and leads to profit being the number one concern of these companies and not the well-being of the American people. So that's how you have to respond to that. What I, here's a problem with a lot of politicians. If they get asked a question, the framing of the question immediately trips them up. Like even the first question that Elizabeth Warren was asked there, I mean, really, honestly, they say there's no such thing as a stupid question. Wrong. This was a stupid question. The person said, how would Medicare for all be better for workers? And Elizabeth Warren, and the framing of the question was basically implying, like, it's not. Like, oh, unions want us to still have private employer-based health care. Do they? I've never heard that before. And if they do, wow, that's stupid. Because the reaction to it is, how would Medicare for all be better for workers? Very simple. If you take the employer-based health care system away, people wouldn't feel like they need to remain in a job simply to get their health care. They'd free up. Uh, you know, the system where you can determine, hey, I want to get a new job and I don't have to worry about being uninsured in between finding a new job. So um, the, answer, the answer to that question was simple and straightforward, where you say to the person who asked that question, um, how would Medicare for all be better for workers? Easy. It frees up labor so you're not tied to your job because you need health insurance. So Medicare for all is way better for workers, way better. In fact, you're going to save money overall and have everything covered and get better care. So it's not even a question. It's way, 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 way better for workers. Now, if you're a worker, I mean, a, a lot of these plans are absolute trash. They're barely health coverage. So I, I don't know why it's not hard. If somebody asks you a question that's absurd, it's not hard to basically respond to it by putting the question in its place and being like, that's really not a good question. That's a dumb question. You don't have to say that because that's harsh and people wouldn't react kindly to that. But with your answer, with the substance in your answer, you could basically make very clear, like, that's, that's really, you know, what are you doing? Really? You're asking that? In fact, somebody's probably looking at the background of the person who asked that question because maybe they were sent by Democratic operatives yet again. Because these, all these fucking town halls, CNN has loaded the room with corporate Democratic operatives working for think tanks and shit and just asking the most loaded right-wing pro-corporate questions. And that sounded like one right there. And listen, her answer, I'm sorry, it was not satisfactory. So let's go through it a little more specifically. She said, um, she's got to stop saying this, man. The first thing she always does is goes into the tap dance of like, well, let's get everything out there. Uh, obviously, Democrats are great and Republicans are bad. And the Democrats are all working towards the, towards the right thing. Liz, that's just fundamentally not true. She, I don't know if she's naive. Or if she's in on the trick, but all these bills like, oh, let's expand Medicare and make it so that it's 55 and up to get in, um, or let's expand Medicaid, or let's improve the Affordable Care Act. All of these plans are not a means to an end, the end fundamentally being Medicare for all. All of these plans are attempts to gaslight the American people and say, hey, we'll take that step, but we won't go a, a step fucking further because we're also paid by the for-profit health insurance companies, and we're not going to threaten their business model. So 
That's, that's what they're doing. So it's not like, oh, my God, all the Democrats are so good on this and all the Republicans are so bad on this. It is true that all the Republicans are so bad on this. But it is not true that all the Democrats are so good and they're all trying to work towards, let's get everybody covered. No, that's not true at all. After the Affordable Care Act, they thought that was going to be the end-all, be-all. Like, oh, yeah, we did it. We did the Affordable Care Act, a shitty right-wing reform. It got some more people covered. I'm not totally trashing on it. There are many good things it did. But it's definitely a half measure. It's definitely a Band-Aid with some ointment on it over a gaping, gangrenous wound. So they thought that was the end-all, be-all. Obviously, the next step they think will be the end-all, be-all, whether it's uh, Medicare 55 or expanding Medicaid more or or, uh, improving upon the ACA with whatever goofy private measures they want to do. So stop saying that it's like Democrat versus Republican, and that's this debate. No, the debate is powerful interests versus regular people. The debate is elites versus working people. The debate is the for-profit health insurance industry and all of their minions who they bought on both sides of the aisle versus the handful of few politicians who are actually fighting for the right thing on this issue, Medicare for all. Choose a side, Liz. Choose a side. Then she even goes on to say, hey, the most important thing is that we defend the Affordable Care Act. No, the most important thing is we get everybody covered. This is not like this is a fucking scandal in this country, man. Again, 32 to 45,000 people dying every year. Our hair should be on fire trying to fucking fix this. Medical bankruptcies is one of the top causes of bankruptcy. And you're talking about, well, let's defend the status quo first. What? No, we need to go well beyond the status quo. She doesn't understand the urgency on this issue as much as she understands the urgency on other economic issues. She seems to get the urgency on Wall Street regulation. She seems to get the urgency on income inequality and taxation. She does not get the urgency on Medicare for all. Then um, she talks about bringing down prescription drug prices. I totally agree on that point, but it's a little bit of a pivot. Um, and, yeah, the, the, the main thing that I can't get over is, that, oh, a lot of different pathways to the same thing. And we got to get everybody at the table. No, you don't. Would At the table, would there still be health insurance companies, executives from health insurance companies? Because if they would be, and my fear is that Elizabeth Warren would say, yeah, we need everybody at the table, including them. If they're at the table, you fucked up. You fucked up. You should be in the boxing ring with them. That's where you should be with them. Elizabeth Warren's wishy-washy answer on Medicare for all. That's the title. I like it. I'm jotting that down. Okay. We got one more with Liz. Let's take a look, bitch. Oh, I fucked up. I went to the wrong graphic. Shoot me in the face. All right, let me pull it back up. But I got one more. This is the one that really made uh, headlines. It was Elizabeth Warren talking about the Electoral College. Um, I want to break this down for you. Here we go. So Elizabeth Warren made headlines with her comments on the Electoral College. This is interesting. Watch. And that is, I believe we need a constitutional amendment that protects the right to vote for every American citizen and to make sure that vote gets counted. We need to put some federal muscle behind that, and we need to repeal every one of the voter suppression laws that is out there right now. 
make sure that every vote counts. And and I want to I want to push that right here in Mississippi because I think this is an important point. You know, come a general election, presidential candidates don't come to places like Mississippi. Yeah. They also come to places like California and Massachusetts, right? Because we're not the battleground state. Well, my view is that every vote matters. And the way we can make that happen... is that we can have national voting, and that means get rid of the electoral college and That was quite the reaction. Now, uh, there's this weird, I don't know, taboo on talking about this issue, and people assume that the polls show that, you know, the Electoral College is massively popular. It's not. In fact, it's the opposite. People really do prefer the popular vote to the Electoral College. So, I mean, it's like 62% or so is the, is the number. And, yeah, on principle, I mean, I really think that the only way you really stay true to one person, one vote, is if you have the popular vote be the way to go. And for the record, there's been multiple elections since the turn of the century uh, where the person who got the most votes didn't win. Al Gore got more votes than um, than George W. Bush. I think it was at least 500,000 more votes. And then, of course, there's the example of uh, Hillary Clinton defeated Donald Trump in terms of the popular vote. But because of the way that um, the Electoral College works, I mean, it's theoretically possible for a candidate to get like, I don't know the exact number, so don't quote me. But I remember I was discussing this at one time uh, a while back, and I was floored by how it's theoretically possible. I think my brother-in-law was talking uh, to me about this how it's theoretically possible for somebody to get like next to no votes and still win the presidency simply because of the way the electoral college works. And I think the, the point I want to hammer away on is that any arguments to the contrary, you have to understand any arguments to the contrary against uh, the popular vote, you're working backwards from your conclusion of the person with fewer votes should be able to win. I mean, no matter how you slice it or dice it, the core of the argument has to be, I think the person with fewer votes should be able to win. Okay. <laughs> but just acknowledge it is my point. Don't like pretend like your highfalutin rationalizations are anything but that, because that's what they are. Um, and there's a funny point that people bring up, which I think is really terrible. <laughs> like it's just such a bad point that it almost, it almost is hard to come up with a reaction to it because it's so bad. Because it's such a bad point, it actually stops you in your tracks. And you're like, did you really make that bad of a point? Where people say, you know, like, oh, but if we move away from the Electoral College, you know, or, or uh, excuse me, they say, um, 
we, you would ignore places where there's very few people. You'd ignore the rural places. So, yeah, that's what they'd say. If we move away from the Electoral College, you'd ignore so many places where there's not that many people in this country. To which the response is, right now, they ignore places where there's the most people. <laughs> like, which would be a bigger concern? Hmm. You're going to ignore the places where there's very few people, or as we have it right now, they ignore the places where there's a tremendous number of people. In the general election, California, which has population 18 zillion, <laughs> and New York, which has population 14 zillion, they, nobody comes here. Nobody comes here, nobody cares, because, oh, they're locked up in that direction, so what, what are we going to do? Or, you know, Texas, same thing. So many people there, and uh, President Kennedy's like, nope, not going. What? There's so many people there. Yeah, but it's a given it's going to go in, uh, you know, uh, to Republicans. So what are we going to do? No, they should have to go where there's all the people. Like, really? We're going to act like, you know, what's a, what's a, I guess Ohio's one swing state. But there are a lot of swing states that have really not that big of a population, and they get way more, um, you know, campaign time and way more attention from the candidates. And ultimately, that's a little bit silly, to be honest. Like, okay, the place that has very few people is getting almost all the attention. I think it's ridiculous. Um, so I would be in favor of that. But honestly, I, think, I don't think it's going to happen. So this whole conversation is like we're just listening to ourselves talk. I really don't think it's going to happen that we're going to move away from the Electoral College. I think the only way that would happen is in the rare instance where a Republican wins the popular vote but loses the Electoral College, and that is super rare. Um, I think that's the only way that we'll get changed because the Republicans would actually be proactive in fighting for it. With the Democrats, they didn't even talk about it after Hillary Clinton lost to Donald Trump. They didn't even mention it. So I really don't think it's going to happen, but uh, one of the more important changes that I think actually has a chance of passing is ranked choice voting. So that, that's one that should get a hell of a lot more conversation because I actually really enjoy the topic of, hey, who's your second favorite? Who's your third favorite? Who's your fourth favorite? And we've been talking about that on this show quite a bit, where, you know, my number one is Bernie Sanders. And then there's a question, you know, hey, who's number two? Is it Tulsi Gabbard? Is it Elizabeth Warren? By the way, I have Elizabeth Warren over my shoulder, um, even though, oh, no, I have the right graphic. Wow. Fake news, CNN. Sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm changing, uh, prematurely changing my graphic here. But, um, yeah, I don't, I mean, I, I think that that's a really important conversation. Who should be your number two? That sounds kind of dirty, but you get the point. Who should be your number two? Tulsi, Elizabeth Warren, Andrew Yang, some other candidate, Booty Judge, who some people are now uh, taking a liking to. So, and that conversation is utterly frivolous until we get ranked choice voting, and it really matters. Okay, now we move on to CNN fake news, and you'll see why they are fake news, and Trump is actually right, but for all the wrong reasons. So CNN comes out with a new poll from SSRS Research, 
And um, they start very aggressively and not at all subtly um, pushing the idea that Bernie Sanders' support is plummeting. So take a look at uh, this. They actually put this up on their screen. Uh, Dems' chances are better, Dems and leaning Dem, uh, with Bernie Sanders, 33%. Without Bernie Sanders, 56%. And then you see the banner there says, CNN poll, Bernie Sanders' popularity among all voters is plummeting. Again, they had their uh, reporters take to Twitter and try to push this narrative it was, all, it was very top-down, very coordinated. I mean, nobody could deny that, that it was all at once they tried to dump that on. Um, now, the reality is what? Well, the sample size was only 32% Democrat and Dem-leaning independents. That seems a little ridiculous. It's only 32% of the group that it, the, is the highlight of it. And beyond that, and this is probably the most important point, they way oversampled older voters. Now, this is a trick I've been warning you about for a while, and that's how there have been a plethora of polls that show Biden is leading, Biden's number one. Again, when you go to the methodology, very clearly in all these polls, they're way oversampling older voters. And I told you guys from the beginning, when it comes to older voters, they're going to like Biden, they're going to like Beto, they're going to like Kamala Harris. That's who they're going to like. They're, they're, the biggest divide on the left is actually a generational divide because young people like social democracy. They like lefty candidates. Uh, Older people like more centrist candidates. So that is the largest divide in in the party. So when you run these polls and you're oversampling older voters, basically you're building in a bias against Bernie. Now, why is that a bias? Because that requires an explanation. It's very simple. In, In elections where Democrats win, they massively turn out young people. Massively. So if you're doing polls and you're oversampling older people, well, that's not what Election Day is going to look like. Election Day is going to have way more younger people. So that is incredibly misleading. I mean, super misleading. Now, probably, honestly, the most important point is, as they're pushing this narrative, this is kind of funny. As they're pushing this narrative, the same day a poll comes out, take a look at this. This is uh, reporter Jordan Sheridan who tweeted about this. I don't know if you can see the little uh, sliver there at the bottom, but it says it's an Emerson poll from the same day that CNN is like, yeah, Bernie Sanders, nobody likes him anymore, it's over, move on. 2020 Democratic presidential nomination, Emerson poll. Biden, 26. Sanders, 26. Harris, 12. O'Rourke, 11. Warren, 8. Booker, 3. Cloud Boot Jar, 1. Booty Judge, 3. The Breakfast Cereal, 1. Castro, 1. Inslee, 1. Gillibrand, 0. Gillibrand, excuse me. The same day they're pushing this idea of like, hey, Bernie who? Bernie Schmerny, bro. You know what I'm saying? Who knows? Bernie Sanders. Bernie. What? Who's that? Weekend at Bernie's maybe. Huh? He's old. Old? He's old. As they're trying to downplay Bernie, same day a poll comes out. Yeah, he's uh, tied for first. And by the way, the methodology in this poll is probably also oversampling older voters. (laughs) So... It's just, they're really trying to push this, man, and and it really is frustrating. Like, there was another analysis that came out the other day. The amount of coverage Bet on My Stork got after, when he launched his campaign, was way above and beyond any other candidate. Now, to be fair, in that analysis, Bernie wasn't at the bottom. 
Bernie was actually, I think, second or third. And then, then there was Kamala. And then, you know, so other candidates actually have a, a stronger claim of media bias. Like Jello Brand has a pretty strong claim of media bias because she was towards the bottom where she's like, hold on, you know, this guy launches it. He gets all this credit and he's just doing platitudes. And then I launched. And actually, to be fair to Jello Brand, she launched with way more substance than, uh, than uh, Bet on My Stork. And she's like, well, I'm not getting covered. What the fuck? So, but they have their favorites, guys. They have their favorites. And the thing that frustrates me so much is, like, when you come to this show, I'm not hiding anything. Like, I'm telling you up front, yeah, Bernie's my number one, two, there's like a tie, Elizabeth Warren, Tulsi Gabbard, then maybe three is Yang. And, like, I'll tell you exactly what I believe, and I'll give you my reasoning for it. Whereas the corporate media, what do they do? They pretend like they don't have any favorites, and they're totally neutral, and they're totally objective, and they're buttoned down, and they have their suits and ties, and they're, us? We're just calling balls and strikes and giving you the straight dope. That's what we're doing. No, you're not. You guys are massively biased, and maybe you don't even realize it, but maybe you do realize it, and you're trying to cover it and hide it, and the reality is your preference is either Beto or Kamala. Like, that, those are the two that are going to get the most push, and then maybe Biden when he jumps in, but I think they'll back off of him quickly because he's going to tank quickly, whereas Kamala and Beto are going to probably uh, make some sort of a run. More Kamala, I think, than Beto, but that's just my personal opinion based on nothing at this point. Um, but they have their favorites, and they're going to push their favorites, and they're going to do it in underhanded ways and weird ways, whereas we're totally honest and upfront about what my bias is, what my beliefs are, what my values are, which then lead to my policy beliefs and things like that. Whereas those guys are, they're like us. No, 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 no. We're just, we're just calling it like it is, which is why we've been doing pushing a narrative for the past few days of Bernie Sanders plummeting, even though he's objectively not plummeting. And, and guys, they try to steer the narrative while pretending they're just describing what's actually happening. Quote that out. Put it on a bumper sticker. Tweet it. Whatever you got to do, because that's the truth. That's the truth. That's exactly what they're doing. So, um, don't believe the hype, but final point is this, don't take any of the other candidates lightly, because it's easy for us to fall into this trap of thinking, oh, he's obviously going to win the nomination, and that's it. Well, no, we got to fight for it. we got to work for it. we got to, you know, you got to knock on doors. you got to tweet about it. you got to call. you got to donate. you got to be involved. Like, we got to do a lot to get to this point, because there are people, and I know from my personal life, man, you talk to some people, and they have very surface objections. They're like, oh, I don't know, he's old. Ugh. As if, like, that really should matter. I mean, fucking FDR was in a wheelchair, and he got elected four times. He was one of the best presidents we've ever had. I don't give a fuck if he's old, if he's in a wheelchair, whatever. I don't care. I care about the policies. And I care about how dedicated they are to this canon of beliefs and policy ideas that are really important to fix this country. So, but we can't rest. We can't, oh, okay, it'll work itself out. No, we got to fight back, and we got to work hard. And we got to be clear that it ain't over until it's over. So keep working because we're up against a media tsunami. Ultimately, I think it can help him. It can help Bernie. I think that's more likely. But that requires our work and our backlash and our fighting for him and our, you know, really, really making it the case, lifting him on our shoulders and getting him over the finish line. Okay. Now we're going to make fun of Joe Biden because he was a monster, probably still is.
So Joe Biden will be launching his uh, his campaign soon. That's been reported now, and what we kind of already knew was going to happen is definitely going to happen. And uh, it's a good time to take a look at what he did at crucial moments in his career. Um, we know Bernie Sanders' record. We just covered a story about how Bernie, right before the Iraq invasion, warned against it and gave a five points as to why we shouldn't do it. And he was right on every point, and it was incredibly prescient. So every time the U.S. did something disastrous over the last 30 years, there really is a video of Bernie trying to warn against it. It's kind of incredible. Whereas Biden, he's a politician's politician. And he's like, I'm going that way because that's where everybody else is going, and I'm a lemming, and I don't have moral backbone and leadership. So this is, um, this is Joe Biden's speech. I can't believe this here. This is his speech in 1993. They're talking about the crime bill. And politically, this was a time where everybody had to be tough on crime. I'm going to stand up and fight crime. That's what I'm going to do. Look at his language. Look at his position and his disposition. And then we'll come back and break this down, and I'll tell you why this is so telling and also disastrous. We must take back the streets. It doesn't matter whether or not the person that is accosting your son or daughter or my son or daughter, my wife, your husband, my mother, your parents, it doesn't matter whether or not they were deprived as a youth. It doesn't matter or not whether or not they had no background that enabled them to have to uh, become a, a social, uh, become socialized into the fabric of society. It doesn't matter whether or not they're the victims of society. The end result is they're about to knock my mother on the head with a lead pipe, shoot my sister, beat up my wife, take on my sons. So I don't want to ask what made them do this. They must be taken off the street. That's number one. There's a consensus on that. Unless we do something about that cadre of young people, tens of thousands of them, born out of wedlock, without parents, without supervision, without any structure, without any conscience developing, because they literally, I yield myself three more minutes, because they literally have not been socialized, they literally have not had an opportunity. We should focus on them now. If we don't, they will, or a portion of them will, become the predators 15 years from now. And, Madam President, we have predators on our streets that society has, in fact, in part because of its neglect, created. Again, it does not mean because we created them that we somehow forgive them or do not take them out of society to protect my family and yours from them. They are beyond the pale, many of those people. Beyond the pale. And it's a sad commentary on society. We have no choice but to take them out of society. And the truth is, we don't very well know how to rehabilitate them at that point. That's the sad truth. I'm the guy that said rehabilitation, when it occurs, we don't understand it and notice it. And when we, even when we notice it and we know it occurs, we don't know why. So you cannot make rehabilitation a condition for release. That's why in our system, there's the federal system, you serve 85% of your time. It's a shame, but we don't know how to rehabilitate. But there is a consensus, and I will cease. A, we 
must make the streets safer. I don't care why someone is a malefactor in society. I don't care why someone is antisocial. I don't care why they become a sociopath. We have an obligation to cordon them off from the rest of society, try to help them, try to change the behavior. That's what we do in this bill. We have drug treatment and we have other treatments to try to deal with it. But they are in jail, away from my mother, your husband, our families. But we would be, be, we would be absolutely stupid as a society if we didn't recognize the condition that nurtured those folks still exist, and we must deal with that. So that bill that he was vociferously arguing for is a bill that locked up countless nonviolent drug offenders. So so many lives were ruined because of his insane position, hardcore right-wing, law and order, tough-on-crime stance, which, again, ultimately this wasn't focused on you know, violent offenders or something. It was nonviolent drug offenders. And look at the language. Take back the streets. Their background of what happened doesn't matter. This is super predator type language. He said there are predators on the streets. Hillary had said super predators. They have no conscience. And probably the worst part part of all is the last part where he says we can't focus on rehabilitation. Rehabilitation, we just can't do it. Now, you know, I'm on record. I've said that I think um, a mixed approach on criminal justice reform is is the way to go, where you you should have rehabilitation and punishment, and it should be... You know, in certain cases, all you need is rehabilitation. In certain cases, you need rehabilitation and punishment. Um, And then in maybe the hardest of cases of, like, you know, serial murderers, rapists, whatever, like, they could just be punishment. But um, the data shows very clearly that rehabilitation works. And, again, this is coming from somebody with a mixed take on it, but if you look at the Scandinavian region and their prison system – their recidivism number is so, so much lower than ours. So in other words, people are criminals, they go to jail, they go to prison, they get out, and they don't commit crimes again, which is kind of the point. That's what the whole point is supposed to be of correctional facilities. Let's correct their path in life and make it so that they don't do terrible things. And they've succeeded. We have a very high recidivism rate, so we failed. And our criminal justice system is overwhelmingly geared towards just punishment. Very draconian. Very draconian uh, and primitive criminal justice system we have here. And basically what he's doing is he's doubling down and he's tripling down on the wrong approach of like, forget rehabilitation, it's stupid, it's naive, it's dumb. When again, the data shows the opposite, that focusing on rehabilitation is actually very intelligent and works. So it's just, Joe Biden, whenever it was politically convenient, hardcore right-winger. That's what it is. That's what you're seeing here. And now you should know this because he's about to launch his presidential bid. Okay. Let me do one more, then we'll take a final break. Let's talk about Trump's loans. (laughs) I love the face in the graphic that's behind me. 
You guys will see it later, but it's so funny. <clears throat> so here's a, a hilarious story. I mean, it also happens to be criminal, but <laughs> it's also pretty funny. This is from The Hill. Trump exaggerated his net worth by over $2 billion to get loans from Deutsche Bank. Deutsche Bank, however they say it. I don't know. Uh, Deutsche Bank reportedly loaned more than $2 billion to President Trump over multiple decades while he was a real estate developer. Uh, The New York Times reported Monday, based on interviews with more than 20 bank officials, that the bank repeatedly loaned money to Trump despite multiple business-related red flags. The report, which details the history between Trump and the bank, comes as congressional committees and the New York Attorney General are investigating Trump's financial ties to the bank. In attempting to secure loans from the bank, Trump often exaggerated his wealth, according to the Times, when Trump was trying to get a loan from the bank to build a skyscraper in Chicago, he reportedly said his net worth was $3 billion. The bank, however, reportedly concluded that he was worth about $788 million. But the bank still agreed in 2005, what, to lend Trump more than $500 million for the project, a decision that was made after Trump used flights on his private plane in an attempt to woo the bankers, according to the Times. Years later, in 2010, Trump again turned to Deutsche Bank for a loan as he attempted to buy the Doral Resort and Spa for $100 million. The bank again reportedly determined that Trump was exaggerating his wealth, this time concluding that he had overvalued some of his real estate assets by up to 70%. Nonetheless, the bank approved both the loan and another loan of $48 million for the same Chicago skyscraper he had secured a loan for in 2005. Okay, so again, I want to be clear. If you go to the bank and you say, "Uh, let me get a loan, and they're like, okay, well, we need facts about your financial history in order to determine this and make a decision. Um, And, and, you know, Trump is like, I'm worth $3 billion, tremendous, unbelievable. I have to tell you. <laughs> and they're like, wait, we just looked through everything, and it turns out you're only worth $780 million or whatever it is, $788. Um, what he did was illegal. You can't – that's bank fraud. You can't be like, hey, this is, this is the reality of my financial situation. Let me get a loan. And it's not the reality of your financial situation because you're lying. You're committing fraud, and you're trying to get a loan on false pretenses. Now, this is such a good story to show that there's, there's uh, different criminal justice systems. There's a criminal justice system for poor people, and there's a criminal justice system for rich people. And there's also a criminal justice system. Uh, what does Bernie say? He says something like the injustice within the injustice is that there's a class divide, and then even within the class divide, there's a race divide. It's certainly when it comes to the drug war. But um, here you have a rich dude who's just lying. I don't, know, I don't know. I'm worth $3 billion. Give me money. Shut the fuck up. Just give me some money. And they did it. But the thing is, guys, and this also busts up the myth of like, well, what do you mean? These bankers are like the smartest people in the room. This is what they told us, especially at the 2008 finan- during the 2008 financial crisis. Oh, it's, uh, you know, they're the smartest guys in the room. So they, what do you mean? They wear suits and ties and they make decisions and they're really smart guys. Donald fucking Trump overvalued his assets by 70%, which is hilarious, by the way. And he still was able to get the loan. Why? Not because they were like, oh, we'll give him a pass, lying to us and being terrible at business because he went bankrupt six times. No, because he schmoozed them and he put them on his private plane and he probably took them to Mar-a-Lago and said, hey, you want membership at this expensive, exclusive club so you can make other business connections? Fine, you get free membership, but do I get that loan? So this is, I mean, this is such a clear example of like the good old boys network. 
rich old white dude lying about his net worth still gets the loan because he schmoozed the bankers and he did a corrupt deal. So this is probably illegal in a variety of ways, but will he get away with it? Well, that actually might be different because now he's, he's become president of the United States. And since he's president of the United States, it's all under a microscope. And now you've got the Mueller investigation. And I, listen, I've made this prediction. I'll make the prediction again for you. When Donald Trump, the day Donald Trump is no longer president, he'll be making that face because he will be indicted on a number of crimes. I guarantee you. He's going to be in, indicted on a number of crimes, you know, fraud, insurance fraud, maybe bank fraud, um, money laundering, a, a variety of financial crimes he's going to go down on. He's going to be indicted for the day he is no longer president. If you think there's going to be a different conclusion, I assure you there's not. <laughs> now, he's not going to go down on the thing that the Democrats are, you know, hard over. Oh, yeah, Russian collusion and treason. That's what's going to happen. They're going to get him on treason, working with Vladimir Putin. They're not going to get him on that. They are going to get him when he's no longer president. So this won't be an impeachment deal. They're going to get him for criminal activity when he's no longer president. So it's almost like he has has to remain president in order to stay immune to this, which is kind of hilarious. (laughs) I mean, if it wasn't so disastrous for the entire world and the country, it would be like a comedy routine. Like it's a comedy show. Like, this fucking idiot bumbled his way into the presidency, and now he can't not be president, or else he's going to go to prison. (laughs) Ah, so ridiculous. And by the way, the number in this story backs up previous stories that we've covered on Trump's wealth. Um, One person said it was like 130 million is the low number, highest is 1 billion. So he's always overvalued, but it's somewhere in that range. And apparently, uh, Deutsche Bank says... It's uh, $788 million, which I would trust their numbers on that. So he does overvalue his wealth, but he's still amazingly wealthy because daddy gave him a lot of money. All right, break time. When we come back, we'll bring this bad boy home. We got Ben Shapiro. We got Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And you guys tell me which centrist will make a run at the presidency. That's very interesting. Stay right there. We'll be right back.
This is what This Is what we've been waiting for The Justice Democrats takeover is complete And you're about to see Direct evidence of it I mean Fox News is going to butcher All the reasons why and whatnot, But yeah the, the Justice Democrats takeover Is complete So this next segment is awesome for so many reasons. Fox News went after Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez yet again. Um, But they did it in a fascinating way. So you're going to see something in the middle here that actually makes me very proud. Um, We can now say the Justice Democrats takeover is complete. In one way, it's complete. Let me be clear, because obviously the majority of the party, it's not Justice Democrats. The majority of the elected Democrats are not Justice Democrats. But we do have a Justice Democrats caucus now, and they are, honestly, the most well-known congresspeople are the Justice Democrats. Ro Khanna is one of the most well-known congresspeople. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, one of the most well-known congresspeople. So that's something. That's big. And so, you know, Justice Democrats is still doing their thing, moving forward, looking for more people to become awesome Justice Democrats. And our takeover of the party will continue. Um, but at least in one way, the takeover of the party is complete. So this is awesome. Let's watch Fox News' new hit job on AOC, and then we'll talk about it. There's a battle right now in the Democrat Party for the space of the movement. you got the old guard, Nancy Pelosi, the new upstarts, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and others. In your opinion, who would you view as the face of the party? I would probably choose Cortez. I would say AOC, Alexander Ocasio-Cortez. Uh, I think, unfortunately, uh, Ocasio-Cortez is probably the face of the Democratic Party. Mm, a majority of students at Georgetown telling campus reform that political newcomer Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is the face of the Democratic Party. What's behind this movement toward the freshman congresswoman? CampusReform.org media director Cabot Phillips joins me now with more. Cabot, thank you so much for being here. Brave to go on a college campus and ask these questions. So you asked them who was the leader uh, of the party. What did you find? It was overwhelmingly, they said time after time, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, she represents my views. I think a lot of young people feel like they can relate with her. They see her on social media. And on a deeper level, I've been on hundreds of campuses. I've spoken to thousands of young voters with leadership institutes, campus reform. I've seen this mentality of people wanting to oppose the establishment. After 2016, a lot of them feel like the election was rigged for Hillary Clinton, so they're supporting more French candidates. I think there's also social pressure to go along with anything that's as far left as possible. Every day in class when you're getting these radical ideas, of course they're going to seem more normal to you. Listen in their own words as they describe other reasons why they support her, and a lot of them are ignoring the policies and just going with her as a person. Just because Cortez is like 29, and she's kind of branded herself as a socialist. She represents like a, a new progressive thing that's really like that's pretty prevalent on college campuses. As my age group fits more, there's going to be a lot more people steering that direction, steering in a more democratic socialist direction. She's pulling pretty far to the left. I think people are going to like it. Okay, now I think I think you're right. I think she's young. She's on these Instagram videos all the time. She's playing up social media. And also, I think the idea of socialism really just is appealing to millennials. None of that surprised me. Now, I have to ask you, though, in New York State, she's doing well on the college campus. When you look at her approval ratings in New York, 31% favorable, 44% unfavorable. What does that tell you? To me, that speaks in terms of ideas on a college campus. Great. Practical application of those ideas, not so great. It should be 
telling that the people that see her the most, that know her the best, have one of the worst approval ratings of her in the entire country. And there's a difference between the campaign version of someone, and in AOC's case, she sounds aspirational. She's inspirational. In many ways, it's easy to ignore the policies and substance and just be inspired by her and say, yeah, of course I support her. But once they actually see her policies taking hold, once they see Amazon choosing to leave and many, in large part because of her rhetoric, I think they're realizing, wait a second, maybe this rhetoric is not really what we wanted. Maybe this is going to be a bad thing. This is bad news for the Democrat Party. The more fringe they go, the harder it's going to be to win re-election. They need to convert moderate voters if they have any chance of winning against Donald Trump. And the farther left they go, the harder it's going to be to do so. Thanks so much for being here. Can't say I was surprised about the college love for AOC. <laughs> Appreciate your input. Absolutely. Thank you. On the Citations Needed podcast, which I recommend, they were talking about this, this phenomenon. It's called the Inexplicable Republican Best Friend, where you have a Republican who's pretending to give good faith advice to the left. Like, bro, listen, in order for you guys to win, what you got to do is be a lot more like me. But you're a Republican. We're trying to take over the Democratic Party. You're the opposition party. Almost by definition, whatever you're recommending I do, I should be the opposite. Because you're not looking out for my best interests. You're on the right. What are you talking about? And you never see it work the other way. You never see me or other left-wing characters like, you know, here's the Republicans if they really want to win, bro. Here's what they should do. We don't do that because that's fucking ridiculous because my advice would be dismissed immediately because I ain't trying to help the Republicans. I'm trying to help Republican voters and regular people and improve their lives, but I'm not trying to help the Republican Party, the, the, the D.C. politicians who I think are basically unsalvageable. So it's just ridiculous that they, they, like, I'm trying to help you out, all right? You know, I've been spending my entire adult life in right-wing politics, but let me explain to the left what you guys got to do. Fuck off. How about that? How about you fuck off? Um, all right, now, a few things to, to um, lay out for everybody. First of all, it is true that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's approval rating has gone down. Now, there's nuance there, and the nuance is really the main category of person that she's struggling with is white men. White men. And with younger voters, she's much more popular. With, uh, you know, with people of color, she's much more popular. And I, I honestly believe, and she believes it as well because she tweeted about it, that the reason her approval rating has taken a hit is because Fox News has become the AOC TMZ network where they just cover her 24-7. By the way, it is not at all beyond them to flat out lie about her. They've done it endlessly. Oh, she wants to ban cows because they fart and that hurts climate change. So she wants to ban cows and she wants to ban airplanes. Totally. She's going to ban airplanes. That's what she's going to do. And people hear this and some people believe it. And then on the Amazon deal front, listen, when the, Amazon, when the de- details of the Amazon deal originally came out, everybody was against it. Everybody. Why? Because it was ridiculous. You're buying a helipad for the richest man in the world with a New York taxpayer money. That's my money going towards a fucking helipad for Jeff Bezos so he can take dick pics in his helicopter as he's flying to his headquarters. And it's, uh, you know, they hose the taxpayers and give massive corporate welfare and and he promises the moon and the sun with so many jobs. But every time this has happened elsewhere with these sweetheart corporate welfare fair deals, you hose the taxpayers. They don't even hire everybody they say they're going to hire, and there's so many downsides to it, and it's just not worth it. 
you want to come to New York, come to New York, but don't, we're not going to lay out the red carpet and hand, fork over all of our taxpayer money. And Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez knows that this is fucked up, and she's fighting against the cronyism and the, and the corporatism. And it was, everybody loved it at first, but then after the media onslaught, not just on Fox News, but also on MSNBC, also on CNN, everybody in that corporate media class started hammering her day after day after day. She's in over her head. She doesn't know what she's talking about. She's hurting New York. She's hurting a job situation. And then, boom, her approval rating took a hit. But I got news for everybody. Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez ideologically agree very much, probably over 95%. Bernie Sanders is the most popular politician in the country. So it's almost like her ideas and her policies are not the reason why uh, her approval rating has taken a hit. And it's the relentless smear jobs against her. Now, you know, I, I feel bad for them because when I say them, I mean the Justice Democrats, because there's not enough of them in office where they can really mount an effective counterattack. You know what I mean? So, you know, for hours a day on all the different networks, they're going after Alexandria, and then she get, sends out one tweet to rebut it, and it's supposed to be even. But no, the propaganda is going to hold when they're doing it day in and day out, and she can only respond via Twitter. So there's not enough of a defense squad to really uh, effectively control the narrative and fight back and, and, and get, you know, our desired outcome, which is for everybody to realize that she's fighting for them. But that's really more of, a, more of the fault of all the smear merchants. I'm not going to blame the victim here and say, oh, it's on her that, you know, uh, she's been relentlessly smeared for months on end <laughs> on a daily basis. So, and, and here's the main point. They got it exactly backwards in that clip, because what did that dude say? He was like, well, you know, you talk to these people, and they seem to like her, not for any policy reasons. Are you kidding me? Justice Democrats was founded specifically on being anti-corruption and incredibly policy-focused. So the whole movement is the opposite of what you're claiming, and I'm willing to bet you this. You take any Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez supporter and reasons for backing Cortez and put it up against any Fox News viewer and their policy reasons for backing Trump or any Republican you want. And the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez supporter, 10 out of 10 times, is going to be able to give you specific detailed policy reasons why they support Alexandria, why they support Justice Democrats, why they support these left-wing candidates. And you notice there were quick cuts in those clips, like, oh, this person didn't mention policy, this mention person didn't mention policy. This person didn't mention policy. Yeah, I'm sure that, uh, you know, I'm sure that there's no footage there that you're leaving out where one of them or a couple of them mentioned Medicare for all or free college or addressing student loan debt or Green New Deal. I guarantee you they mentioned that and you just kept it out. And you're pretending like, oh, oh, these new lefties, they're not at all policy focused. All we are is policy focused. All we are is policy focused. So it's obnoxious and it's ridiculous. And, um, it's a shame that the relentless propaganda has worked to an extent. Um, but just understand something. The oldest tricks in the book are projection. So try to accuse the other side of what you're guilty of. So these guys are not at all policy folks. They're like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, not at all policy focused. What? What? Or just like they did recently, they tried to muck up a fake corruption scandal against her and against uh, Shoykot, who was one of the co-founders of Justice Democrats with me and Jenk. By the way, literally none of us, myself, 
Jank Uger, Shoykot, and Zach Exley. None of us took a single penny from Justice Democrat. None of us took a salary. None of us took any money. We all did it because we care deeply about these issues and we want to fix the country with the right policies. And ironically, they claim that somebody who never took a fucking dime is the corrupt one. And Justice Democrats are corrupt. And Alexander Ocasio-Cortez, they claimed he's running a slush fund. He wasn't running a slush fund. The way Justice Democrats was set up, you needed the money centralized in one place in order for Justice Democrats to try to run all these different campaigns and still maintain it in a legal fashion because our fucking campaign finance laws are so convoluted and so insane that we need to put the money all in one place and it had to be put through an LLC. But they turn around and they go, ah, ah, the corruption. They have money in one place. And obviously, they're the ones who are corrupt, even though their whole movement is founded on stopping corruption. So it's a projection nonstop, and you see it again in this clip. Oh, all the supporters of AOC and Justice Democrats. Are you kidding me? All the supporters, they don't care about policy. Where have you been? Where have you been? It's really frustrating. It really is. But hey, we knew it. We were going to get relentlessly smeared no matter what. And here we are. And by the way, it's hilarious. With the overwhelming success of Justice Democrats, um, you know how many uh, interview requests I've gotten? Like, oh, hey, shit, you co-founded a group that was wildly successful that's taken over the Democratic Party. That's amazing, man. Can I interview you and ask you how you did it and what your ideas are and what the future of the party should be and what you think? How many interview requests have I gotten for that? It's almost like they don't want to know because they are all trying to fight it, whether it's news or MSNBC or CNN or all the corporate politicians. It's almost like they're all against it, and so they're trying to shove their head in the sand and act like, if we give it no attention, maybe they're going to go away. We'll see about that. All right, let's make fun of Ben Shapiro. God, he's so smug. Smug Ben Shapiro uh, went on Fox News to um, hilariously and ironically and hypocritically grieve about how bad grievance culture is. Um, and in a hilarious but predictable twist, he ended up playing the victim. Take a look. Civilization and, and the basis for America, this idea that we were supposed to go forth and conquer, that we were supposed to forge into the wilderness, and we were supposed to build something out there. That sort of mentality, unfortunately, has been abandoned in favor of this grievance culture, as you suggest, that says that we're all owed something from the world, and if we don't get it, it's because the system has failed us. Well, and and even the the shirt that that young woman was wearing, T-shirt, when she was confronting Chelsea Clinton, of all people, like Chelsea Clinton, but isn't that kind of a, I hate, I'm so sick of the phrase jump the shark because that's jump the shark, but isn't that telling you a lot about just how pathetic this whole entitlement movement has gone when Chelsea Clinton is targeted? 
Yeah, I mean, when Chelsea Clinton is too radical for you because she's too far on the right, I think that maybe you've, you've not just jumped the shark, you've jumped the entire aquarium. It's demonstrative of how subjective feeling have taken the place of objective fact. What Chelsea Clinton had to say about Elhan Omar was basic objective fact. She was speaking anti-Semitism. Chelsea Clinton called her out on that. And somehow she's now responsible for the Christchurch shooting because she did all of that. But that's how some people feel, and therefore it becomes the truth. And they've been told that they're right and that they're special and that they are, they're wonderful individuals because they go to places like NYU and because their parents told them they were special. And so objective fact never actually has to be brought into the conversation. It's objective fact that Ilhan Omar is an anti-Semite. It's an objective fact that Ilhan Omar said anti-Semitic stuff, according to Ben Shapiro. Ben, I'm not quite sure you know what objective fact means. Because it certainly doesn't mean that. Saying she's an anti-Semite is, or saying she said something anti-Semitic, is 100% your opinion and your perception, and your interpretation, your subjective feelings about what she said. We've gone over this. And by the way, I challenge everybody out there. You go, you specifically ask somebody, give me the exact thing she said that's anti-Semitic. And they can't do it. Why? Because she didn't say anything anti-Semitic. She said it's all about the Benjamins, which was regarding AIPAC, which was saying AIPAC, the Israeli lobby, buys politicians to do their bidding. You know why she said that? Because they do. That's not anti-Semitic. That's factual to say lobbies try to buy politicians to do their bidding. It's not just APAC. It's the Saudi lobby, which she also called out, by the way. Is she an Islamophobe? Is she an Islamophobe, Ben? Is she an, is she an Islamophobe? So they accused that of being anti-Semitic. Well, you said money, and the old stereotype is that you know Jews are greedy or try to control people with their money. So therefore, that's what you're saying. Therefore, you're an anti-Semite. You, they make like a thousand leaps to get to the conclusion that she's an anti-Semite. And he dared to call that subjective fact, bro. Subjective fact that she's an anti-Semite, bro. Subjective fact. And then the other thing is they tried to say, oh, my God, she brought up dual allegiance. Except she literally did not bring up dual allegiance. And people were way reading into what she's saying. The same crowd that screams about how, oh, my God, the left cannot stop with their false cries of bigotry against Trump supporters. Not everybody you disagree with is a racist, bro. Not everybody you disagree with is a xenophobe or a bigot, bro. Why are you doing that? Why are you just assuming the worst? Now that crowd is me like, you're an anti-Semite, and you're an anti-Semite, and you're an anti-Semite. Rashida Tlaib is an anti-Semite. Alexander Ocasio-Cortez is an anti-Semite. Bernie Sanders, who's a Jew himself, is an anti-Semite. Ilhan Omar is an anti-Semite. And again, the nerve to call it an objective fact. It's an objective fact, bro. See, the thing is, he talks really fast to try to make you think he's saying smart stuff, but then also, he's just very, like, everything he says is very, like, I'm just stating it as if it is true, and let's just not dive into the specifics of any individual claim I'm making. This is, what he, this is Ben Shapiro 101. I'm going to say something that's totally subjective, totally a matter of opinion, it's my interpretation of the situation, but I'll say it fast and pretend like it's an objective fact, then a bunch of people who aren't going to, like, dig deeper into it just go, oh, my God, Ben, oh, she's fucking genius, man. Ben's so smart. He's so smart, bro. He's so smart. Facts and logic. He just faxed and logicked us. By the way, he is about to debate Andrew Yang, presidential candidate Andrew Yang, who I generally like, by the way. I have some disagreements with him, but I think he's a generally a good guy. He's, he's high on my list of, uh, you know, if I were to have ranked choice voting, where I would put him. Um, they're about to debate 
the issue of circumcision. Andrew Yang bravely came out against it, and Ben Shapiro is going to take the position that facts and logic dictate you should cut off the tips of baby penises. I wonder, I'm curious, you know, you can send this to Ben and ask him. Ben, are you okay with the practice of some, um, you know, ultra-Orthodox fundamentalist uh, Jewish folks who literally have a ceremony where they cut off the tips of baby dicks and then they suck off the tip? Where does that fit in the spectrum of facts and logic? Is that the fact side or the logic side? (laughs) How did you determine that it's totally cool, bro, it's totally cool. Cut off the bloody baby penis tip and then suck it off, bro. What do you mean, bro? It's just my culture, bro. There's nothing weird, nothing to see here that's weird. What are you talking about, bro? God, you're such a joke, bro. You're such a joke. Ben Shapiro is so ridiculous. He considers himself really religious, and his whole thing is like, facts and logic. <laughs> what? That doesn't mix. That doesn't mix, dude. Oh, my God. How does anybody fall for this shit? How does anybody fall for this? And then, listen, final point is um, <laughs> he goes on about grievance culture there, and he talks about how, well, you know, these guys, they, uh, this new generation, it's the entitlement generation. They think they're owed stuff. I love how his commentary is just like down-the-line, old-school, boomer, far-right Republican bullshit talk. Like, uh, younger generation, you know, back in my day, we earned stuff. This new generation, they don't earn stuff. It's all about grievance culture, and it's all about being owed stuff, and they have a sense of entitlement. Like, congratulations for being the fucking dipshit grandpa at Thanksgiving dinner who just copies and pastes all of his opinions from a Bill O'Reilly show from 2001, Ben. Congratulations on that. And by the way, let's just be clear here for the record. The entire new left-wing movement, which I know because... I'm a part of it, and in fact, I'm one of the founders of it, which else is Democrat. The entire movement is, let's give people equal opportunity. Right now, they don't have equal opportunity. We're not asking for equal outcome. We're asking for equal opportunity. So in other words, let's do what every other developed country does, and they do way better than us, that they've figured out, that certain things, basic things, basic things are off the table. Healthcare, education. If you work full-time, you should make enough money to survive. So no, nobody's asking for, oh, let me stay home all day and pay me a million dollars a year, and I want to make the same as the CEO because everything's even and I'm entitled to it. Nobody asked for that. There, his entire trick is I'm just going to massively straw man the other side and then go, facts and logic. Objective facts, bro. Objective facts. Your, your stick is getting so old, dude. It's so old. It's so obnoxious. And if you're somebody who has liked him in the past, you know what? We forgive you. But graduate. Let's go. Graduate here. What do you, really? This is the guy you're going to, oh, 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 Benny Dunn got him again. Anti-Semite. Anti-Semite. Don't call people on the other side racist. How dare you? They're not racist. They're not bigots. Anti-Semites. Not bigots. Anti-Semites. Grievance culture. Entitlement nation. They're, why, why are they grieving all the time? Anyway, now let me pivot to the part where I'm going to grieve about how everybody's an anti-Semite. Okay, that was fun. I think that's going to make a very good segment. (laughs) All right, um, let's do the final two real quick. 
So I asked everybody um, who you think will make a run from the centrism camp, the centrism stock of candidates, okay? So um, I didn't put everybody, you see a bunch of them here. I didn't, some of them I think are hopeless and there's no chance they're going to make a run. So I didn't even add them in this little poll, this Twitter poll here that I'm about to show you. Uh, Cory Booker and Amy Cloud Bujar. Over, race was over before it started. No prayer. Hilarious. Only there to mock. Um, but here are the ones that have a prayer of making a little run. Take a look. Beto, so you have uh, Beto, my store, Kamala Harris, Uncle Joseph Biden, and then none. I could have put uh, Kirsten Gillibrand for that last one there. I did not put her because I, she's mounted nothing to this point, and she's been in for a while. And the crazy thing is her strategy is actually not terrible. Like, her strategy, she's trying to be like, yeah, no, I'm totally kind of like Bernie, except I'm a woman and younger, so maybe me. And she's pouring on a little bit of economic populism, even though she's full of shit because, you know, her record kind of contradicts it. But nonetheless, she's gotten no traction to this point. There's a small chance Kirsten Gillibrand, you know, picks it up. But what you guys said is Kamala's got the best chance of making a run, followed by Beto, and then followed by Biden, and then none. Um, So, in other words, you guys kind of agree with me that of the candidates who are in, Biden's going to flame out, Beto's going to flame out. But the centrist, I, I personally don't think that uh, Bernie is going get to get out of this race without somebody making a run. You know, there's a lot of those Hillary Clinton folks who are still there in the party and they didn't go anywhere. And they're politically active and they're going to vote. And um, I don't know how much of a percentage of the party it is. But what I do know is it's mostly the older Democrats. I told you guys a thousand times. I'll tell you a thousand more. The divide in the Democratic Party is a generational divide. The older Democrats are more centrist and more pro-corporate. Younger Democrats uh, and independents and left-leaning independents are more left-leaning and pro-social democracy and democratic socialism. So I don't think Bernie's going to get out unscathed. I don't think that at all. I think he's the favorite, but I don't think he's going to get out unscathed. So one of them is going to make a run. I was going to say, I I think it's Kamala, even though she hasn't shown much signs of life to this point. Um, But right now, the establishment is lining up behind Beto. Now, will that money help him? I don't know. It didn't help fucking Jeb Bush in 2016 on the Republican side. Um, But he also did, he released his number, by the way. Um, And he says it's like 128,000 or so unique contributions. So let's be clear. Bernie was like 224,000 individual donors. That's the, the language he used, individual donors. Beto was about 100,000 fewer um, unique contributions, which is a different phrase, very different phrase, very different phrase, from individual donations or individual donors. So in other words, they might be trying to fudge the numbers a little bit there to even make it seem like it's higher than it is. But they said Beto's numbers, they say $47 average, Bernie's $27 average. Listen, bottom line is, there actually, I think there is some support for Beto, even though he's a platitude machine. And some people, just the older Democrats, usually like those platitude machines. I mean, what are you going to do? It is what it is. So the race is not over, and we have to fight. But according to you guys, you tend to agree with me that of all the centrists, the one who might make a little bit of a run is Kamala. So we'll see. But I hope none of them do. It would make our lives a lot easier, but we're going to have to fight no matter what. We're going to have to argue no matter what. We're going to have to bust our ass no matter what to get Bernie over that finish line. Okay. 
Final story of the day. So Nancy Pelosi and House Democrats have been going at it on the issue of impeachment. This is in USA Today. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi dismissed fellow Democrats who say she has set the bar too high for impeachment of President Donald Trump. In an exclusive interview with USA Today, Pelosi said some House progressives have, quote, wanted to impeach the president since the day he got elected. You're wasting your time unless the evidence is so conclusive that the Republicans will understand, Pelosi told USA Today. Otherwise, it's a gift to the president. We take our eye off the ball, the speaker said. Instead of impeachment, Democrats needed to stay united in pushing through legislation that they campaigned on, such as addressing rising health care costs and creating jobs. Quote, I'm not going to say it's all about him, Pelosi said Monday during a stop in Ferguson with Representative Lay Clay. No, it's all about you and you and you, she added, gesturing to an imaginary group of people in front of her. So a few weeks ago, she got a bunch of shit because she said, oh, no, I'm not going to fucking go for impeachment. And people were like, oh, my God, that's premature. Oh, my God, what about Mueller? Oh, my God, if Mueller releases a report and it says that he did, uh, you know, hold Putin's hand and frolic through the meadow and he did treason. Uh, oh, my God, how could you say this early that you're not going to do impeachment? Well, now she clarified a little bit and she came out and she said, well, if the evidence is so conclusive that even Republicans will understand, then yes. But outside of that, no. And there were people going after her. And listen, sit down, buckle up, rare instance coming at you here. But I think Nancy Pelosi's right, actually. What people are not taking into account who are for impeachment, like billionaire Tom Steyer and a bunch of people, many of them on the left who are just rabid and foaming at the mouth, and they're like, I hate him, we got to get him out. What you're not taking into account is the, amount, the tremendous amount of political capital you will be wasting on impeachment to then get Mike Pence in power, who will do all of the same shit as Donald Trump, while you also not only wasted your political capital, fired up that Donald Trump base where they're going to do massive turnout in the next election, and you actually give the Republicans a much better chance of winning in the next election. And also, by the way, we have recent history to prove this. What happened when the Republicans went after Bill Clinton and impeached him? What happened? The polls for Clinton shot up because they were like, kind of relax a little bit, okay? And you don't think that's going to happen in the opposite direction? I guarantee you it's going to happen in the opposite direction, especially since people are calling for impeachment right now, and they won't even tell you exactly what they're calling for it about. They're like, I don't know, we should impeach Trump because maybe with Russia or something, I don't know. So what? No, that's not a thing. You can't just, I'm going to impeach you because Russia or something. That's not a thing. You have to, okay, here's a specific thing. Now, let me be clear. Are there certain things you can impeach Donald Trump on? Yes. Is that thing Russia? No. <laughs> What you can impeach him on is emoluments. So the emoluments clause of the Constitution basically says the president cannot take any money from foreign governments because then there's an obvious conflict of interest where if you take money from foreign governments, you might set policy to help those foreign governments and not in the best interest of the American people. That is exactly what he's done in terms of Israel, in terms of Saudi Arabia, and probably in terms of others as well. He's a corrupt businessman, and they've been pouring money into his businesses as he's been doing favors for them, like giving them weapons deals. So you could definitely impeach based on that thing. But the question is, does it happen in a vacuum, and will you get away with it? And the answer is it doesn't happen in a vacuum, and you're not going to get away with it. And you greatly increase Donald Trump's um, favorability rating. You greatly increase the chances the Republicans win the next election. You turn out his absolutely rabid base. And on policy, you lose everything anyway because Mike Pence is just as bad as Donald Trump.
So I think Nancy's right. And for the record, she did say only if the evidence is so conclusive that it's basically you can't rebut it, then yes. And in that situation, then sure, you got to do what you got to do. And even though you might waste political capital, um, and even though it might backfire on the Democrats, it, it's still on principle, you could argue we have to do it because it is a matter of principle. It's so conclusive. What are we going to do? Um, but other than that, I kind of agree with her default setting. Her default setting is let's not get crazy here. Let's be intelligent about this. And she's right. And actually, it's kind of crazy. She brought up policy. She's like, we're saying we're agreeing that it's all about him. No, we need to make it about you and you and you, meaning we need to make it about the policy because that's what governing is supposed to be about, not getting side, uh, sidetracked with sideshow nonsense. So I kind of agree with her, and this is a very rare instance where I agree with Nancy Pelosi. Um, so in this very narrow way, good for her. Obviously bad for her because she doesn't support Medicare for All or any of the really important policies she needs to, but in terms of impeachment, I don't think she's wrong. All right. That'll do it, baby. That's the show. I love you guys. I'll talk to you soon. Everybody enjoy the rest of your day. Um, and check out Corin's World because I'll be on there this weekend. We have some awesome fun stuff planned. And we'll record it, including the tour, the fast food tour. But anyway, love you guys. I'll talk to you soon. Peace.